from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. The Wharton School Huntsman Hall. Sirius XM Business Radio Studios looking out onto the University of Pennsylvania's Locust Walk on a gorgeous, crisp, beautiful, sunny, still February Wednesday morning. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, all my collaborators. Glad to have the team back together. Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, and Bradlow. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. We're going to be here for the next two hours. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. For almost four years now, every Wednesday morning, somebody here talking sports analytics. You can jump into the conversation if you'd like to. We wish you would. Give us a ring. That's 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. Maddie Datz, our producer, standing by, ready for your phone calls. You can also email us. Email Matt. He'll take an email from you live, real time. We'll get back to you. The email is... What, Eric? Business radio at SiriusXM.com. <laughs> Thank you. That's Eric Bradlow covering for someone who hasn't been here in a little while. You can also follow us at W Moneyball. Twitter handle up there. We're talking business analytics on a regular basis. Give us a follow at W Moneyball. Guys, I don't know what's going on. No football. I don't know what. what you you have nothing you to do me. now. Is that I'm the not, issue? I'm, I'm it's, oh, there's it's quite a bit. Sad. I'm a little sad. <laughs> I mean, come? there's still football. We could talk. Uh, Thank you, Shane. We could talk coaching changes. You know, they finished up uh, recruiting last week, signing day last Wednesday. Y'all want to do? Y'all want to do the next two hours on 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 college football signings? Well, I I, I heard no. that uh, <laughs> I actually was reading about signing day. <laughs> Some teams didn't do so well. Michigan, for example, Michigan, had a terrible that's signing true. day. That's true. I, te- I should be paying attention. Te- Texas, number three class in the country. Because I'm, wow. I'm researching all this information. I'm researching uh, the relationship between the, the draft in high school, the non-draft, Adi's, and eventual uh, football stardom. Adi's it's pretty strong. On- ongoing investigation to take down college athletics. We'll get, we'll no, get no, actually, it's not to take that. It's totally refocused. <laughs> it's no longer about taking down college athletics. What is it going to be about? It's about making the pros pay for it. Oh, nice. Oh. All right. All right. Adi Weiner, we're going to be paying attention to that over the next few years. So. It's going to revolutionize college athletics. I hope so. All right. Anything else catch your well, eye? Because there are, there are, I recognize, yeah, no, there, there are some, some other things going on. Definitely something that caught my eye, and it relates to analytics as well. So one of the marquee events in the Olympics, which is going on, was the men's half pipe last night, which Sean White, two-time Olympic gold champion, won last night. It's his third gold medal. What is he, 30? or not? He's 31. 31. So there were two issues I wanted to talk about related to that. First, um, I was semi-impressed with their use of analytics, and I'll say what I mean in a second, but semi-unimpressed, and here's why. Apparently all of the... I feel half- like semi... Yeah. Sem- I can be both. Well, right. How I mean, I, I feel like semi-almost... I was half impressed and half not impressed. Yeah, like is, that, a- is that because it was the half pipe? Hey, that's oh, pretty good. Man. I, uh, that was I'm pretty good. <laughs> Having me, all four of us in a room, I give up. <laughs> let me say why I was impressed and why I was not impressed. Um, all the half-pipe participants are now wearing wearable devices. And so during the actual event, the announcers were talking about some basic metrics that the uh, participants, like how high did the person get, what was their takeoff speed, etc. So I was impressed by that. The thing I was less impressed by 
was it did not appear that the judges were provided as much information when scoring. Because, by the way, this must be – it's the most painful thing. There, between the, When the participant is done and the judges come up with their scores and it's announced, it's got to be three or four minutes. So what are they doing during that three or four minutes? I would hope one of those things they might do in the future is actually you could look at tracer. You could look at the trajectory. You could look at the tightness of the spin, which the announcers were talking about, the rotational speed. You could talk about the landing area because they're supposed to land as close to the top as possible. All of this is measurable because they were wearing measurable devices. As a matter of fact, they pointed it out on NBC. So this was kind of a half full, half em- half empty kind of thing. I was impressed that they were getting towards analytics, but it didn't appear they were using them as much. The way way you describe it, it sounds like you could write an algorithm to score them. Well, I was just about to say, I mean, the part I cannot get into with any Olympic sport that is based on judges is is the subjectivity of it. I I mean, I just cannot get into any sport that is judge-based. I was watching the mogul competition, and, you know, you'd, they'd come down, and, you know, the speed was part of the, the, judge, the judging score, but there's also style points, and frankly, it seemed pretty arbitrary. I mean, I mean, yeah, they can separate out, you know, if somebody, the wipes, from the if somebody okay. wipes out, they get a lower right. score than somebody who didn't. That I can understand, but I would love for the, a day when the when this, you know, essentially algorithmic scoring replaces the judges, I, I, just like it's going to replace the umpires in baseball. Well, I don't know about, maybe. Um, let me just say the following. I agree with you completely. Um, let me just say the only good thing about it, though, at least. So they understand about multiple judges. So there's not one judge. There's six. It's a little bit better. Yeah. They do a trimmed scoring. Well, they right. get rid of the lowest and we've the learned, highest. We've, no, no, I'm we've not... learned something from a century of terrible judging and figure <laughs> skating, right? I mean, yeah, sure. No, I'm just... And at least the one good thing, although the second place person did not agree with this, uh, Sean White won by what was a margin that most people would consider out of the margin of error. Now, we can yeah. disagree with the subjectivity of mm-hmm. the judges, but he won by three and a half points. He got a 97.75. The uh, others, the Japanese uh, half-pipe participant got a 94.25. So I think that was an area that most people feel is out of the margin of subjective error. But on the other hand, I like that there were at least multiple raiders. They got rid of the lowest and the highest. I agree with you. It seems like there could be something more so automated. The problem yeah. is, is that this is a somewhat new sport, and, and none of us really know how much inter- uh, basically athlete variability there is and how much drudger, judge reliability there is. But in, in diving, which is something I've actually studied, the judging, there's a, there's, they're, they're pretty accurate. I mean, the, the judges differ. Ac- accurate. Yeah, accurate. Consistent, it, do you mean? Consistent. Yeah, well, yeah. No, well, we, one way to look at it is look I at mean, the other six. What's the ground truth here? Okay, so you look do you at mean test, retest, reliability? Uh, no, you can, unless you take eight judges and look at their standard deviation within each other on the single dive. And that's much, much smaller than the variance across all dives. That's just a z- simple, very basic way to, to okay. judge what you're looking at. And yes. are they finding anything so at all? Let me, let me say, let me just, based on that, I wish that would have been great. I wish last night they would have put up, just like in skating, the distribution this, right. of scores across judges. <clears throat> and because that <clears throat> way we could have compared the intra versus right. inter judge reliability. And the that would have been great. This is so important. I mean, is it, uh, we're actually going to have John Templin on at 8, 8.30, and he has this article. Nine, 9 o'clock, actually. Is it 9 o'clock? Who's, uh, and it's about, about actually uncovering or unmasking 
the biases, nationality biases that is in figure skating. Yeah. And it's it. The question is, is that how can you mask it? Well, you can mask it because there's a lot of variability. You so, can mask it by not showing the individual judges' scores. Too. And that's another, that's a very direct, <laughs> but, but they actually report them now. So you have all of it. Yeah. They don't show it on the screen, but they have them in the database. What was also interesting about the scoring last night, which this would be something, another empirical thing you could test, was um, Sean White, intention, not intentionally, he wanted to win the the qualifying round. Now, the question is why? Because that meant it didn't matter what happened. There are three rounds in the actual finals. He went last in all three rounds because he won the qualifying. It didn't matter what place he was in. He could have been in 18th place going into the last jump, last uh, run, and he would have still gone last. The judges, not the judges, the announcers were pointing out there's always a bias towards the person going last. Now that's in favor. It favor in Why? favor of. Well, just because this person qualified the top, it's usually in some cases maybe it's the biggest star. In this case, it was Sean White, the two-time champion, going last. So Sean White wanted. He actually did better in qualifying. He got a hundred. He got a perfect score in qualifying. Both to number one, he really wanted to go last. And you know, there's they claim there's some evidence that there's a slight bias. And you could test that. Yeah, you could. And I, I suspect, here's another bias I suspect is in there. Well, by the way, by, on, on Sean White, can you imagine what it's like to compete against Sean White? I mean, setting aside his ability, which, of course, is supposed to be everything, but it's a hard thing to set aside. But set that aside, they just have to be biased toward the Correct. biggest. I mean, he created the sport he created in many the sport. ways. How can, how can they not? How could we expect them not to be biased? Here's another bias that I suspect is in there. When people evaluate, they tend to want to even up over kind of short runs. And so you kind of they, they expect things to be relatively evenly distributed in, in, in ridiculously small samples. So over two or three or four people, they well, expect it to kind of even out. So what you see is you tend to bounce back. After really high, they want to come back down. After really low, they want to come back up. Well, let me, is there an actual observed, like you could... Is there a negative yes. correlation between subsequent this judges? Is, this is what I'm asking. Or like we, subsequent it's been people shown, that are judged? It's been shown in experimental and field-based research in evaluating, say, me, like re- recruit, recruits. So um, you would, it stands to reason that it would be in here. Let me also talk about one other interesting thing about we talk about mechanism design or like scoring design all the time. It's an interesting way this sport is scored to. Each person gets three runs. They take the maximum of the three. That's it. So in other words, what happened to the second place person was interesting. His best run was the first one, and he actually fell on the next two, including, this would be an interesting thing to study as well, he fell on his next his last run just before Sean White went on. So now all of a sudden you have in some sense maybe it's a contrast effect. This guy is falling just before if you'd like. The guy falls just before well, he did, gets... He was, did he, was he, uh, he was presumably already behind Sean White's best No, 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 no. Sean White was in second going okay. into his last run. This guy tried to up his lead, yeah. which he should. There's yeah, no you reason should take, not you to should do take that. chances, he does, obviously. He takes chances, and he fell. And so now, I don't... You know, again, one could test. I mean, Adi, you, got, you have a class on this that you're using in Morton Moneyball. One could look at the serial correlation, not only within participant, like when Sean White gets a highly high score... Does he tending at a low score from the judges, but one could look at uh, participant to participant correlation and see if the guy before you falls, does that tend to lead to you to have a well, higher score? that we've got all this judge analytics when we really we could just have the robots do this for us. Okay, well that's, you're, you're really pushing take, the robots. I mean, I think I think, for a second. I think in, 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 in baseball, it probably could happen. Not yeah, a big fan of that, but it definitely can happen. But it's not going to happen. It's not happening in in, in But Adi, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be because it turns out humans like the arbitrariness of themselves. I guess. 
but it doesn't have to be one or the other. Right. This is, let's, can we explore well, the middle I mean, ground? Baseball, baseball is, there, is the middle okay, ground. That or, was my point when I started off. You saw what caught my eye. Remember, I didn't, I, by the way, it's not that I mind what Shane is saying. Remember, what I said is, I wish more of the analytics had been fed to the judges. Mm-hmm. I wish the judges had, in some sense, track man data, if you'd like, for the, uh, the speed, the velocity of takeoff, where they land. I wish all of that had been provided to the judges. And then, if you want a subjective piece, which we could debate about how much value there is in that then that would have been nice. But I didn't get the sense that all of the data that you could provide to the judges was there. So, so Kay, the, the observation you were making, I think, is an extremely important one. This idea that judges have of trying to uh, even up their, their scores, even in the very short run. I mean, this is what, uh, I guess, was as Kahneman and Tversky is the law of small numbers. The idea, basically, you should, should ba- have, have very, very good balance, even in very small samples. But let's just be clear. The law is in quotes there, because there is no law of no, small no, numbers. I, yeah. I know you know this. I'm just <laughs> okay, for emphasizing. The, for the, uh, right. There's a law of large numbers. It's a well-known statistical property. And the, right. and the mistake that Kahneman and Bias established is that people believe it applies in small samples as well, which it very much does not. So you, and you can imagine that applying here where you see a bunch of very good performances in a row and your your idea is well my average should be average we've got a bunch of really good ones and that biases you down even in a very small sample and that's where maybe the analytics could help because if you had a, a, an objective standard that says those four dives or or skates or or half pipes were extraordinary on some analytical measure, maybe that'll give you confidence nice. in supporting it and then nice. not running away negatively. I, I stand by my statement. I wish more analytics had been provided to the judges. I think that would have been a nice thing. And to the fans, by the way, happening to watch it. I, it would have been easy to provide you, so, those types of analytics. Let, you, let's, t- let's note that we're talking about different levels of analysis. So on the one hand, you could give them the raw measurement. You know, Sean White flew this high or landed this close to the zone. The next level, you could you could aggregate all these different scores into some kind of Summary, algorithmic-based evaluation. Too. And then third, Audie's saying, then you could also place it in the distribution of historical scores so that people know right away. That was, that by be, the algorithm, a 98.9 percentile. F- and I, you, you could do any any chunk of this if you want. You could still let them give their judgments. Well, but. the problem there then would be, what do you do for people that have high positive or negative residuals? So then all of a sudden, you know, the algorithm says 98 for Sean White, and you give him a 93. And so then all of a sudden, you know, the minute you make that transparent, you put the judges in a very difficult well, they position. they shouldn't be employed. So, yeah, of course they are in an uncomfortable position. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, it's not exactly a job creation kind of thing. We are replacing right. them by robots. Exactly. But hold on. There's, there, most of these places do care about, most of these competitions do care about style in some way. Like, you, presumably, I don't know these things, but presumably you could create the exact same algorithmically evaluated performance on the half pipe, but one might have more style that appeals to people or aesthetic appeal than another. Absolutely. And that's, that's where there would still be room, how these things brought together, how gracefully they're done. You know, we've all, that's, that, now before we jump on this and attack it, we've all observed athletes who make difficult things look easy. There's a grace that's done by someone who's got an excess of capability. What I thought it's interesting way you put that because what I was thinking last night as I was watching this is I was thinking although there's no explicit scoring in the half pipe on these two dimensions, let's call it style and let's call it just pure athleticism. It was clear to me and my wife who was watching with me that the Japanese half pipe uh, participant, his rotations were tighter. It just they just were. They were just look. You look. Even the announcer said it, but. He didn't get as high as Sean White. He wasn't as flashy. So if one wanted to trade off in some sense of, let's call it style, flash, and just pure athleticism, 
there's no question in my view and the announcer's view who was a who was a gold medalist that the Japanese was better on some dimensions Sean White was on the other and he even said while well, in that hard three minute period where we're waiting he goes I don't know how this is going to go it depends what weights the judges right. put on certain dimensions and the that's same, exactly what the, the, the same thing is right. true where, in, where, the same it, thing is true in figure skating the same thing is true with diving and all these sports the same thing if we were talking about a, a winter a summer sport like synchronized swimming it all is artistic and how you judge uh, the physicality the the jazziness the, the jazziness well this is part of this is part of the <laughs> okay, hold sport on. hold on do you guys yeah. have preferences i mean this is these are sports i I'm mean you want to well, no okay 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 have well, you, so shane have you, who's your favorite shortstop of all time uh well that's a good question probably Normar Garciaparra and because of his jazzy hands <laughs> at the plate oh you are so uh, so predictable uh, what team did he play for well, oh, the Boston oh, Red Sox. No, no, and there's okay. no problem that his favorite player is like the 15th or 20th best shortstop of all time. There's no problem no, with that. No, he asked me my favorite. <laughs> he didn't ask for the best. Yeah, yeah ask his no favorite. Actually, That's yeah. what I said. There's yeah. no problem yeah. with Audie, that. who's your favorite shortstop of all time? My favorite shortstop? He's going to give us someone from the 50s. <laughs> watch what? No, Probably Ozzie person, Smith, I would guess. I was going to say Ozzie Smith, too. Now, why do we like Ozzie Smith? The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, there's a wizardry to the play, the way he played. And, and right. I think you have to leave room for that. An algorithm's not going to catch that. But I don't think that means well, you throw out the I algorithm. I mean, it could eventually. I mean, I, if, 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 if this is something, if, if these, are the, if these jazzy aspects or whatever are something that Eric and his wife can see as they're watching this competition, then they are something I that can be quantified. Jazzy. What I said well, was, yeah, no. I said I thought his, Depends on the like, sport. Like, in, yeah. like in diving, they measure how tight the rotation is. That right. seemed to be there. That's all. So, so that caught my eye in sports. Now, yeah. are there? We jumped on. Not surprisingly, this group jumped on the the judges in the Olympic sports. Now, beautifully, some of the Olympic sports don't involve judges. Yeah, they, they're either a the race against ones. a clock, or they're a competition against a, a, another individual or another team. Yeah. What else have you guys been? What else have you enjoyed? Mixed curling. <laughs> No judges, <laughs> just pure talent against talent. Yeah, from the uh, between, between the three or four countries in the world that play this. Who else competes? I know so Canada obviously, US. but Canada, US, US, Switzerland, 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 former Canadians. Sweden. The U.S. team are all former Canadians, correct? Finland, or Minnesotans, or someone right They're by the border. No, yeah, there's a lot of yeah. Americans yeah. that curl. Are they are they Canadians who didn't quite make the Olympic team and came to U.S.? Is that is that? Oh yeah, it? I mean having dual citizenship is and being from boring. Canada. You probably play for the other team, uh, whatever other country you're dual citizen on. No, I mean, uh, yes. I mean, there are probably literally a handful of countries that compete. Um, and Canada won the gold medal in mixed there, curling in a, a shocking of, turn of events. There's but, a lot of love out there for curling. Oh there's my goodness, it's so fun! It's so fun, and it's not. I mean, a, it's not subjective. It's completely objective. Who wins and loses? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it, there's an amazing mix of technique and strategy. I mean, you it is definitely low on the athletic dimension relative to other, other Olympic on. sports <laughs> on ice. Um, <laughs> this is a retired person's sport. On ice, on oh, ice, he on says, ice, on ice. Yeah. It's interesting, yeah. you know, just I have to admit, Shane, I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, I've never thought about, and I think this is not a... I think it's an interesting thing that you've thought about sports on a dimension that I've never thought about, them, which is a good thing yeah. for you, which is kind of the, I'll call it the objectivity yeah. of the sport. Yeah. Because I sure. actually, no, I'm just saying, I've never thought of sports on that dimension. I happen to like sports that have a subjective nature to them, although it frustrates me at times. I've just never thought about. Eric, that can't be because your single favorite sport is hot dog eating and pretty objective. Yep. 
I mean, there that is some is true. I There's... do like hot dogging. I'm just, I didn't yeah. say I've, I just said I've never thought of it on yeah. those dimensions. Yeah. Now what I'm going to have to go back so, to so after I, the show, I, I'm going to go back to my office. I'm going to create a map. With dimensions, I'm going to put sports what's, that I like the, on those other, dimensions. What are the other dimensions? You got to tweet well, this thing out. Athleticism, by the way. I assume, would be on those dimensions. Athleticism. Or, athleticism would be on those dimensions. Okay, here's an important one. I think that the Olympic brings to mind is: is it, is it, is it, is it, is it strategic? Is there, is there competition? Strategies yeah. are great. But what I mean is, are there? Yeah. What's the right? What, what am I looking for? I'm Single versus components. multi-competitor. It's, it's not. Yeah, multi-competitor. It's not. And, at the, and simultaneously. You know, it can't well, that's just a be different issue. Who's, like, like curling's not simultaneous. Yeah, and pole vault is not simultaneous, right? So right. pole vault is, is, is an individual sport. Yeah, I mean, so it's not just an individual versus team thing. It's whether or not it happens. Like, are you real time competing against somebody else? And so there's and it's a strategy adaptive based on in game outcomes as the opposed other, to yeah. some str- strategy you develop ahead of the competition can that I, you execute. Can I, by the so, way, can I just Adi, Adi's not Adi doesn't like this dimension. Go, oh. No, I just don't know exactly where we're going. We're trying to give Eric a third dimension for yeah. his... Other dimensions uh, that yeah. one I mean, it's going to be hard to draw this map if we give him a third dimension, I'll be honest with <laughs> well, you. Well, I can well, use R. I can use R and draw okay. in three dimensions. All right. But four. I had another question to ask you guys, though, related to the half pipe and everything else. I was thinking about, of all the athletic events I've seen in my life, which ones were kind of the highest pressure situations? Let's just remember, every other athlete had been done. Wait, I just want to say, this is the half pipe. There are other events during the years, the X Games, all of that stuff. But it's once every four years. Sean White's in the silver spot. He's the last participant. If the other guy just fell, if he lands everything and does everything, he hopes he can win the gold. I'm thinking to myself, what are these other moments in my so life hold, hold, that I've so seen? So don't answer yet. Don't okay. answer yet. I think it's a, it's a wonderful general question about sports. It's one of the reasons we like sports. We get to see performance under unbelievable pressure. Some people rise to it. Some people don't. We can sympathize with that. In fact, most of us have a hard time imagining how we could come close to doing what they do. Let's take a quick second. Think what your answer would be to Eric's question. I know what my first one is, and I think many of us and have I the know, same answer to this. I don't this. think so. I know what mine is. But 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 we can. But there's more than just one, of course. I mean, this is I, as much as I give you guys a hard time about baseball. This is one of the things I love about baseball: the pitcher against batter. Yeah. In the key moments, and sometimes Gig- it's, the, yeah, pr- the pressure the, situations the are very acute. That's one the whole great season, thing about the whole baseball. season can turn on you yeah. know, yep. one one pitch, and that's the great thing is is uh, it, it's an individual against an individual, yeah. and, and then there's this umpire in there <laughs> who can just mess it all up for you. As well. I'll go okay. first to give you guys time. This one is in my top five, by the way. To me, the it was I was thinking about this last night. Phil Mickelson on the eighteenth hole of Augusta, when he had played the Masters, let's say fifteen or twenty times, he had never won the Masters. He had like a twenty foot putt to mm. win the Masters. Mm. Is this one his vertical six inch vertical? Exactly. Okay. That's the, that to me for me is I don't know if it's higher than the Sean White one from last night, but that would be mm-hmm. I, just one of the ones that came to my mind. Phil Mickelson hitting that twenty footer to win the Masters. You the know, pressure in, in my in my mind immense. that's higher than Sean White just because it was no. sort of like he had had these failures failures up until exactly that point. He had these epic failures. He had he didn't right, have two the, golds the pressure, in the bank. Sean right. White had two golds in the bank. Sean White falls had, down. La- yes, you know I mean he still, still got the think silver. Of Sean White is Sean White, and he still you know? got the silver. Remember, it's yeah. the maximum score. Everyone else is done. So to me. That's the what, one that came what, to my what mind. I, what I don't love about that is we've seen other people, not many, but we've seen other people make almost the exact same 20-foot putt on Augusta's number 18 to win the tournament on Sunday. Like Marco Mira did the same thing. 
Marco so, Mira so, hit a 20 footer to win and, the no, Masters. You're, 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 Agreed. You're adding, Agreed. You're adding the lifetime career stuff, which is real, but it, I think it and takes also, it down it was a notch. Phil Mickelson's, in some sense, he had said, the only tournament I care about winning in my career. Well, right. Look, it's for me. It's two levels of pressure. You're arguing that the sort of like kind of external pressure of the moment is basically equivalent between Marco, what Marco Mira did and Phil Mickelson did. Eric and I, I think, are, are basically projecting a lot of yeah. internal pressure, yeah. into, extra so, internal way, pressure that was, into that Phil Mickelson. Are we going around? Yeah, well, I've got a lot of them, but yeah, that's I, one. I figured you did. Well, let me give you <laughs> one right on top of that because it's related is Tom Watson's butt yeah. uh, at the British when mm-hmm. he was like, 84 years old. 59, about, yeah. I know. Eight-footer yeah. to win, That's the, the, to most win the British I've Open. I've ever seen in sports. Now, one of the reasons I say that is because he, because you could see the pressure in his stroke. I've never seen performance be crushed by pressure so much. But it was so understandable. It would have been, had he made that putt, the greatest moment that I've ever, ever observed in sports. I and I would put it against any And I want to say, moment. I was at a Yankee playoff game, but watching that event on my phone. On your phone. And I was literally... Since I'm a big golf fan, also a big Tom Watson fan, I was literally in tears when I saw him miss that putt, which I knew he, and then I knew he would admit, lose in the playoff. Oh, yeah, there's no question. But to me, I agree. That was that's another good one. I like that. I one. have three great moments. All They're right. all almost the same, which is different context. One would be the very first one that really almost transformed. You know, as a kid, Chris Chambliss home run mm. playoffs. Defeat the Royals. The entire Yankee Stadium poured on the field. So he had to go back three hours later and touch home plates. This is 77, 76. 76. So, so what, what were the exact circumstances? Basically, uh, the Yankees are down. This is Yankee Stadium, bottom of the ninth inning. Walk-off home run. Ga- game game five. There's only a five-game series. Correct. So this is, this is tied up at 2-2 for okay. the pennant. For the pennant. This is before yeah. there was a, an yeah. extra round. Okay. And the Yankees hadn't been in the World Series in 15 years. Oh, this so is the beginning. This is the beginning. Yeah, of by the way, they did not win the World Series They did not win year. in 76. And it was just absolutely epic. I mean, the entire, the entire stadium poured on the field. What was the pitch count? That, 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 that I, remember. I remember whether there were two outs either, but I remember okay. but that. But the game play. ended. And, and the game ended. But there, but this happens in baseball. Yeah, enough. I mean, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, you could list like ten kind of playoff dramatic. home runs like that. You know, Kirk so, Gibson and Carlton Fisk. And how about Joe yeah. Carter's walk off home Joe run Carter to win the World, World Series, Series yeah. against the Phillies in '93? Yeah. Yeah. Bucky but, Dent, but, 1978. One of the eighteen we saw last season. <laughs> you know, know there there But you know, Audie was Audie was ten or whatever, and that was the beginning mm-hmm. of the great run that the Yankees had yeah. um, so and so you said that you had a couple others like well that, there I mean there was similar there's similar ones. Okay. the Bucky okay. Dent home run yeah. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I have a friend who's a very big Dodgers fan and his bar mitzvah was the day of the Kirk Gibson home run <laughs> oh, which oh, right. is pretty amazing <laughs> yeah do you have one Shane uh, one of these high pressure memories oh I think it's got to have curling. No, well, I mean, curling, <laughs> there have been some epic but, curling but moments, wait. but I will not. <laughs> let me throw my Patriot. I, I, I can't even get into them. There's too many. Let me throw my Patriot friend on <laughs> yeah. the bone here. Vinatieri. Come on, he he the Adam Vinatieri yeah, kick the to win one. the Super Bowl. The first against kick to the, win the, against the, the Rams. The, 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 the greatest again. show on turf. That, that would be the one I was going to go uh, with. That, came, I mean, that was my third, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So the Vinatieri field goal. Those, fi- those field goals are yeah. ones where you, you get know, really sympathetic with those kickers in those right. situations. Really, well, like Scott Norwood, for example. Oh my God, poor what guy. Is, well, what Mr. Is Scott our Norwood Buffalo doing? fan here. Yeah, I, was, yeah. I, was, I lived in Buffalo for two of the four Super Bowls, and I mean, what has Norwood done? I mean, you got to bleed for the guy. I hope he's living a healthy life somewhere. But my yeah. God, it's well, not his fault. I mean, most people would miss that kick. Most professional <laughs> kickers would miss that kick. Wait, it was in like the. Th- 
30-yard range, right? No, it was a 41-yard, no. 42 yards. It was, 40, 42 42 yards. Yards. It was, it was over 40 kickers. yards. Across all 41-yard kickers. It's definitely above 50% to make Na- that kick, right? Now it is. I'm not sure it was. Oh. The, I mean, professional NFL kickers yeah. have gotten so much better. Much better. 41, I may be much, 41 is in the mid-80s. Did you see, do you see how much? I just want to just recap for a second. How much we got out of this what caught our eye in sports? <laughs> we started talking about judges' reliability. Yeah. We started talking about bias. We talked about automated scoring systems. We've now talked about kind of high-pressure moments we, we got to give, we, 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 we we the opportunity to give us his own. We undercover his own. curling, but what's yours? Right. No, mine was the Tom Watson. Oh, yours is the Tom Watson British, okay. for sure. But I, I just, I mean, I just agree with Eric that it's it's this amazing thing, and I love. I mean, I was not watching last night, so I didn't appreciate that it was quite that pressure packed. But it sounds like exactly one of those moments, and this is this is why we watch sports. This is why you can drop in mm. and enjoy. The World Series, even if you haven't played attention to baseball, you, you can drop in and watch any sport well, and appreciate this what's also going on. was ex- to me is also extraordinary because of a the pressure on him going last, and also I don't know at thirty one this might be his last Olympic moment, and he's the one that invented the sport. Mm-hmm. So to, it, it just it had to have been one of the most pressure situations that I've ever seen. Another another question on pressure because we've seen high performance at the other end of the age spectrum. You're saying Sean White's on his way out. We had the American. Female Chloe Kim, who won at the age seventeen year old, she probably would have competed last time if they had a letter. Right, letter so thirteen. What, what does it make? You know, people talk about these young athletes are are kind of they don't know what they don't they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what the situation is, and, and that frees them in a way from some of mm. the pressure. Is that true? And do we have any studies of that? I don't know. I used to be a pretty serious, you know, comp- competitive swimmer in high school, and I found that it was very, very intense. Yeah, it's it's hard because I mean, it's it, so it was confounded very with the effects of age as well. I mean, you could look at gymnastics, right, where you get a relative, you know, do younger gymnasts do better, but they also perhaps do better just because right. they're, they're young. They're, you know, right? I've also <laughs> got to think that in – let's take go back to the Sean White example. Let's imagine what happens if he doesn't do well. All right, well, he's still got two golds in the bank. He's still Sean White, mm. and he gets a silver. So in some sense, it's – different in the sense that he's got this historic success yeah. that he's already got which means you know you can't take those two golds away from him even if he falls and everyone remembers that so to me that's also what changes the amount of pressure but that would that also take away unfortunately from Cade's big sports it was Tom Watson I mean it has five British Opens wins he has you know some I mean I, I actually agree that your the, the Watson moments one of the like it was, highest pressure moments so I mean, it, it, regardless of his successful career he clearly felt pressure in that yeah. situation I mean, it, would, I, it, it would have been the greatest sports accomplishment in my lifetime and i mean across all sports just so just one other thing to, that you may not that. you may or may not remember about that moment but tom watson hit a shot to the green there yeah. that got the worst break i've ever seen in golf for those people that don't remember he hit what he considers the best now tom watson is known as the greatest one of the greatest ball strikers of all time he had a perfect shot for some it took this strange bounce over the green. He thought it was gonna his shot was gonna be five feet from the cup. It went right past the cup and rolled just into the fringe. So he had to chip back to six or seven feet away. He he would have two putted from yeah. six I could two putt from yeah. six feet probably. He would have two putted from twenty if it had Even been, from twenty yeah, yeah. feet, he just ended up with a bad break. So are, a lot of sports are still in front of us with the Olympics. Are are there any sports that you guys yeah. are especially looking well, forward women's to? Women's Michaela Schifrin, the big I mean, this is it got delayed last night. By the way, if you, you want to see a whiteout on the slopes, the wind was so bad, you couldn't even see where the skiers were supposed to come out last yeah. night. But Michaela Schifrin, one of the big hopefuls, I mean, the gold medalist from last time, 
She's now got the I think it's the Super G tonight, and then the Slalom tomorrow, and then then of course Lindsey Vaughn's coming up in the downhill. So, so she she's the one that's anticipated to win like a almost. Crop. At, well, she's going to compete in five events. They're saying she could have five gold medals. Right, right, right. Because they're talking about her in you know kind of terms of like Michael Phelps kind of comparisons. It, that right, starts. Though. It was, she was so supposed is, to be last night, so but which, it's starting tonight. So. With that in mind, a question to think about, which is more impressive, what Michael Phelps does or what she does? Assuming she wins all these. Like, are, are they more, is there more variety across her events than Michael Phelps's events? Wow. Great question. That's a tough one. I mean, because there's so many different strokes that Michael Phelps has won events in. So there's huge variety there. But I'm I'm not I'm a skier, but I'm not an expert to know yeah, how big it is. Swimming, how would it be if you won the downhill, the super I, G and the slalom? I mean that's they're all skiing. Obviously swimming is all swimming, but the different strokes are different body types. So it's amazing. You think the swimming would be more yeah, impressive? Yeah, but than out of your bias, because you know the sport. I do. We, we all can unpack what we play yeah. much more finely. Skiing looks a lot more Guys, impressive, so I, I'm biased, too. Come on, this group, of all groups, how would you establish that empirically, objectively? You would look at how... You'd how look at often it, yeah, people yeah, win. Yeah, exactly. You'd look at how often people compete and how well yeah. they do across and the And I mean, that, in, that, in that case... It definitely argues against Michael Phelps because honestly, before so Michael too. Phelps, there was that other guy that won like five you mean gold Mark medals. Spitz? Mike Spitz, people, and, and be, <laughs> you know, I mean, whatever. I mean, forget. people win multiple medals across these events all the time in swimming, which takes away, frankly, from the achievement. I think that's fair. I think the other thing you could do, I, I don't even know that I would look at the, just the wins. You could look at something a little more refined, like the percentile distribution. Like, how good is somebody in one? You don't, you don't have to that's just right. look yeah, at the outcome right. of that's winning right. is that's my right. only that's point. Right. All that's right. better. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. We're just rolling out of the first quarter. And into the second quarter of the show, this is Cade Massey hosting this morning with all my buddies, collaborators, and faculty colleagues here at the Wharton School, Shane Jensen, Ani Weiner, Eric Bradlow. You can jump in here and join the conversation. We wish you would. The number is one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or email us. Email is businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. It's a great way to reach us if you're listening one of these times, and it's not 8 to 10 Eastern. Then it's a replay. It's one of the four or five times we're replayed over the course of the week. You can drop us an email, though. We'll pick it up. We'll answer next time we're on air. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle up there is at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall. We follow all our guests. We tweet periodically about the world of sports analytics. We've been talking Olympics. We'll come back to Olympics Later in the show, but what non-Olympic sports are you guys paying attention to, if anything? Pitchers and catchers report. Oh, Anybody? Yeah. What a line, huh? How happy does that make you? It makes that line? me very happy. That must be one of your favorite phrases in the English language. Yep. <laughs> That's it. Those four words. <laughs> Is it? When, did they already report? Is They're starting. Like yeah. Yes. Wow. So That's I had a, I had a thing. very specific. Obviously, it's about the Yankees, but I had a specific question to ask you because I would imagine there's two possible counterbalancing forces, statistical forces, and I wanted to know which one you think might be greater. So the Yankees now have, if you want to call it a big three, Stanton, Judge, and Sanchez, okay? Last year, just to remind everybody, uh, Stanton hit 59 home runs, Judge hit 52, and Sanchez 33. With an injury-shortened Injury-shortened season for Sanchez, so 144. So let's even just say we adjust Sanchez for the number of games he played. On the one hand... Regression to the mean, you can imagine mean reversion. So you, you might should guess, imagine mean right, reversion. Right, you might guess less. On the other hand, another force you might say is greater protection in the lineup, interaction effects among players. So if you had to guess 
we're all guessing, but which force is stronger? Mean reversion, you know, 59 is, well, it's the highest number since 2001. 52 is an extraordinarily big number. But in some sense, they'll be batting, let's assume, 3, 4, and 5. There's no way to pitch around, let's say, Stanton's hitting fourth. Let's say Judge is hitting third. I don't know if that'll be the order. Maybe Sanchez fifth. You can't really pitch around because the next— So I'm just, I was just thinking to myself, which force do I can, think will can, be greater? Can, I'm going to take a technical aside real quickly. This is a little persnickety, but I think it's probably worth it. There are two different concepts, mean reversion and regression to the mean. There are two different concepts, I believe, well, and at least technically. Now, they're often used interchangeably, but they are technically different. And what Eric means is regression to the mean, which is a very big, important concept. Mean reversion is a, is a different thing. Mean reversion says after being big, there's a pull towards being small, or after being small, there's a pull towards being a force. big. A force. A right. force. <clears throat> Eric, regression to the mean is the absence of force, essentially. It's that noise. Yeah, it's an error effect. It's well, an yeah. effect about the random error component where, Judge, I'll make this up, Stanton's truly a 50 home run person. His error just happened to be positive on this year. He'll be he's a 50 home run person. He might get a zero residual this year, so it's not that his ability changed in some sense. It's just he got a positive yeah, error, and that's a very strong force. Yeah, right. Well, it's not a force. Not a force. It's, it's a strong, it's, not, it's, it's an empirically regular. Yeah. Uh, to attribute it to a force is called the regression fallacy, to make yeah. the mistake that it's a force, force. that brings Good you back. Point. And that's what we call right. the sophomore slump. So if Aaron Judge has a, a poor year this year, the, everyone will talk about how he's somehow having a that's difficult a great time So what's your, what's your answer and, to and my, the Which answer one's greater, the protection effect? No, no. I'm making that term up. Which one do you think will be greater, the protection effect? or the, the regression of the, the mean. mean. So the problem is you have to figure out their mean. And it's because it's regression to your mean. Right. And, and when an absence is, of which knowledge... Is, which is moving. Which is moving. moving. And, and, well, that's, that's, really that's, and there's momentum. <laughs> that's mean reversion. Eric, I'm just, just having it. fun with you this morning. So the real question is, we have information about Stanton, and we also have information about homer hitters historically. 59 is so large, you got to push you got to push Stanton down, without a, without a doubt. So I would guess Stanton's going to be mid-40s, Mid forties, high forties. It's it's an interesting question. So let's stay with Stanton for a second. So, talk talk us through your forecast for setting aside Eric's Eric's details, yeah. which are nice. He's batting next to some guys who are really good, so he's going to do better. Set that aside for a second. Just talk us through the way you would come up with your forecast for Stanton's home run count this year. Thinking about that. Of course, there could be non not momentum, non stationarity yeah. in his home run hitting ability. Right, and right. what years would you use? Like, would yeah. you use six years it's ago hard. from it's, Stanton? It, and this is all an extra. We're we're just going to admit it's harder in practice than we sometimes wave our hands at and say, ah, I just regress. Just to figure the mean. out your yeah the mean of what what yeah. mean? Okay, so walk us through. Well, the problem with Stanton is is he's never had a really a full year until last year. He's had a couple, but he's had some partial years of injuries, and so you can't just look at his total. You have to look at his rate. So his rate last year was in an epic, you know, one in ten. And at bat rate, which is you know in the all time great list, it's a top ten performance, maybe top fifteen of all time. Do we happen to know? Just, just by the way, I love that you went to the rate because I think that's a great way to do it. Do we know? Is there a negative correlation between sample size and rate? Maybe because of fatigue. Maybe like in other words, had, can you just linearly project? Let's say his rate last year was ten in one hundred and forty games, one per ten at bats in one hundred and forty games. Well, if he had played one hundred and sixty two, well, maybe his rate would have gone. Down well, because probably of, because it was such an unusual performance. Yeah, so that's right? regression. No, to the I'm, mean. I'm even referring he's, he's to something turning, different. He's I'm, tiring. Yeah, I'm just asking: Would there oh. be a fatigue <clears throat> effect that you'd also have to take that into account with the rate? Maybe. Well, I don't think we've we've necessarily observed that. I don't think that's. Um, 
I don't, it's a great question. It's a great question, but I don't. In the models of sports performance, no one has really incorporated a fatigue effect at the end of the year okay. into a player, individual player's performance. I, I, you ought to in pitching, for example. You, uh, it doesn't you, seem to. You'd you'd like to, um, but and and I don't know if there's a Massey Peabody system that's doing it. But I haven't actually read it or seen anyone. So just a quick it. question, Adi. You think if you took the data, just a simple way to do this. Let's say we took the data and we broke it up into eight. 20 game blocks in baseball and we looked at someone's home run rate in those 20 game blocks and i'm just making there's up no excess you're at you're, what you're 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 hinting at is excess variance and so there isn't there's plenty of variance in those Correct. blocks and lots and lots of random variance because but there's nothing systematic game of about failure. block eight no. versus there would Not be that nothing I know systematic of. i've never seen it or encountered hmm. it ever okay. a systematic block effect so it's it's so maybe it's worth maybe no one's researched it. Yeah, that would your be absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Okay, I would so, al- so. I was also wonder by the way if it would vary by the type of player. Like you might say, I'm making this up though. You know, Stanton's a huge man, yeah. just a, you know, a mountain of a man. So maybe you know he I'm would like that fa- Aaron Judge guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, but maybe they would both fatigue at yeah. the end of the season more yeah. so well, than a Mike Trout had a, or somebody. Yeah, like Judge that. had a huge, yeah, that's huge right. downfall. Downfall. He had a downturn after the All Star break, and then a gigantic resurgence at the end of August through September. An unbelievable resurgence. So how do you you, you factor this in? So, I think so it's I, just randomness. Let, real quick, I'm going to bring us back to the question, and I want to note. So we're asking Adi how to how he personally would project. Giancarlo Stanton's home run count this next year as an exercise in actually applying this regression to the mean concept, which we're always about. We could, I mean, we could do all day on this. It's that it's that important. The first thing you did was you separated rate from number of at bats, which is great. Right. So you're decomposing. So after going through the rate, which is what we're all thinking about, you then have to think about how many at bats he's right, going to get. Right, uh, because one of the real reasons why he'll end up with a, a a much lower number is I doubt his rate will change that much. Because it's a fairly stable number, one in ten, one in ten. Oh it, might go, it might go to it might go to one in twelve, which would be fifty home runs, or one no, in fourteen. No, that's a big difference. It, it one is. in fourteen gets you to forty-two, forty-three, real, at six hundred at bat. If he gets six hundred, he's not at bat. getting six hundred bat. First of all, he'll get walked like crazy, and well, that's that, that's what your lineup protection means. He might get fewer walks than he has historically. Okay. But I actually think that the guys like John Carlo and Aaron Judge they walk a lot because. They're very selective about the pitches mm-hmm. they they take, and as they a result, out they a strike too. out a lot yeah. too. That's the that's and the new game. So I don't think it's about protection. I think it's about they they this is a huge new game. Is this? Yeah. You just you wait for your pitch because you it's so important to drive it in a home run. They'll just take the, the thing I love about what you've done. Besides, I like the decomposition. Is as you're pointing out, there's two things in some sense to forecast here. One is the rate. The second is the number of at bats. And, like, and then <laughs> and then there's a the third component. So that you think those are two. Of the only look at historical rate. Look at his historical historical at bats and then you get a variance but then there's the last piece which i which i think is it's a sort of this global it's almost very bayesian and i am a card carrying bayesian these days so you you stand back and you say how often do people hit 59 home runs just as a as a group of all baseball players i don't know anything about john once Carlo. in the last 18 years right. let's and start so with that. i go with so in other words i say that <laughs> is so rare forget about paying attention to who the person is it's just so rare that you got to walk walk back and in fact in my in my baseball research seminar we were discussing how many hall of fame candidates would make it this year and Edgar Martinez was was uh, right on no no it wasn't Edgar uh, who who didn't make it this year uh, Martinez, Martinez didn't, make, didn't it. make it he was right on the border going mm-hmm. in and and it looked like he was going to make it but we stood back and said when was the last time we had five and the answer was the first yeah, the first, Never we talked since. about this on the air. It was and the so, first time. So that you just have to back away, even though the date is all saying he's going to make it. It just be, that would create an, 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 such an unusual event. You just got to walk away from so it. So how do you blend? That's a wonderful thought and consideration. But how do, how do we blend those things going forward? Like you're basically talking about blending 
Stanton's historical rates, and you're doing that in a very thoughtful, and historical way. at bats. And then you're going to blend that with some. Hold on, big picture, big picture, the whole system. What does it look like? How do you decide how much weight to give to those things? Because you're talking about that system consideration being kind of a finishing school, a last second qualitative bump, one way or the other. Is that really the way we want to do it? Is that, well, are we, let me ask you are we stuck doing let it? Let me that ask way? you a question. Couldn't you do the following? Let's imagine you apply this procedure, except for the last step, to lots and lots of players in lots of lots of years. Now you compare that to the actual, and you notice there's a systematic, let's call it intercept and slope shift, that you then calibrate the whole system. We do yeah. this all the time. Yeah, the yeah, system's yeah. great, but it needs final calibration. And we yeah. do, but let me just give an example in marketing. We're a business show. Yeah. We compute models that we give predictions of how much market share a given product's going to have. It gets the rank ordering right. Mm-hmm. It gets all kinds of things right. But it's not properly calibrated. It needs an inter. It needs you know. If you looked at an X Y plot, it's consistent. But there's a you need to shove it down and change the slope a little bit. Let's do that in this case. So let yeah. me give another example. When you when we simulate when Massey Peabody simulates um, like win totals or playoff outcomes, exactly. You can get all the components just right, but you got to have variance correct, or else you're going to have way too many teams with you know exactly. undefeated seasons, or not enough yep. teams with undefeated seasons. So you kind of calibrate the variance in order to get the right number of undefeated teams right. for the historical average. So Eric's saying exactly. the way we do it is we, we can't do it by just looking at Stanton. we got to use the same methodology and look at all of our home run hitters and then ask how they aggregate up to see yeah. if we're calibrated correctly. Well, calibration is, I mean, so right now if you take a look at the number of wins, the projected number of wins for every team, they are, I would argue, way, there's too much variance. There's less variance in the forecast than, than what you would get at the end of the season. That's oh, definitely less yeah. variance. But, but there, should forca- be. there should be there less, should be. Yeah. but they still have too much. So they're forecasting the best teams to win okay. 95 games, and that's too high. Which is too excessive. Well, it's only, it's only because they're not actually – yeah, I mean, we, we, we all know that there's probably going to be a team that there wins 100-plus oh, games. Yeah. We just don't know which one. That's right. <laughs> and so you're not going to take it – You know, but, they, yep. but my argument is they have too much right now. How do you judge yeah. that? Because I know what the forecast should be. And so if you look at the, the – to forecast a team at 95 wins, to forecast is, is too high a forecast for any one team. So um, – we're going to, in the next month or so, start talking about baseball wins wins totals. But it was fun to talk a little bit about pitchers and catchers reporting, even though all we talked about was hitters, well, we of course. We're, but before we leave, I have to ask you, big signing for the Cubs. Yeah, you Darvish, week. man. Oh, yes, a big signing. So uh, people are talking about, well, you know, we, we were beginning to fade the Cubs, but here they come again. Yeah. And I thought Eric Amendigo was going to ask, okay, the Yankees have staffed all these batters. Their staff is not... Isn't doesn't look like a five to one World Series probability. You're saying they're 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 overrated going into yes, this season, yes, you know, because of their pitch, their pitchers aren't as good. Well, and it's just, pretty uncommon for the Yankees to get overrated going into a season, right? Yeah. No, nobody thinks about those guys. Well, not just I, I would say not just that, but let's also remember, like let's even imagine. I'll just go back to football just for a second. I'm a big Buccaneers fan. I say the Bucks are going to draft great. They're going to do great. Winston's going to play better. Okay. Well, they were in the division with the Saints, the Panthers, and the Falcons last year, who all made the playoffs. So the Yankees didn't win the division last year. The Red Sox won the division last year. So Red Sox stood pat. <laughs> yeah. So no, I'm just saying though, it's not just that the Yankees need to get better, but we know, you know, I'll yeah. use the Shane Jensen coin flipping. They may actually have to play an extra round 
a one-game extra round. And so to say that they would be even the favorites, I mean, they first have to pass the teams in their division, and they're not in a weak division. So, I it's, mean, it's just a, that it's, it's the classic example of Vegas odds not being probabilities. So much right, money is exactly. going on the Yankees. They're willing to drop the odds. And yeah. People are willing to take well, the Yankees at 5 That's Sox, crazy. So you're wearing a Mavic. You're even wearing yeah. a Red Sox hat today, Shane. What are the odds? Just let's, one simple question. Who wins the AL East? Well, I mean, do you put more? Uh, no, do you put more weight on the Yankees or the Red Sox? They right did now? just get like you know the NL MVP for a bucket of balls or whatever in the off season. So yeah. I mean, there is that that does change <laughs> the dynamic a little bit. Who's he, um, who's he replacing? That's a real. I mean, so it's pretty, she's probably adding forecasting well, five to point. six, yeah. five to six extra. Give wins. us some names, guys. Give us some names. Who I mean, they have two excess outfielders. But they who have, are you talking they, about? They have Gardner. He's going to stay. Ellsbury's probably going to be benched. You've got uh, um, Hayes. So Yankees have an excess. These are very good players. So they're replacing a, a very good player with an extraordinary player. It's. I think it's going to forecast four or five extra wins for the Yankees. Is that going to guarantee them the division title? No. It puts them certainly within. Well, they were within margin of error last yeah. year. The Red Sox had ninety three wins. I think the Yankees had ninety or ninety one yeah. wins. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm just saying. They're in a tough division. By yep. the way, they have the, to win that division first. I'm not saying right. they can't win from the wild card. But Ma- Matty Dodds tells us that the odds for the AL East are Yankees plus 150, Red Sox plus 175. So the market likes Yankees the are Yankees a little, a little bit, bit of a favorite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe mm-hmm. actually maybe quite consistent that. with your five or six extra wins for Stanton. Yeah. All yeah. else is kind of the same. Yanks are protected two or three extra wins plus one fifty versus one seven five. Any non baseball sports that you've been paying attention to? Well, so I was actually now that the you know the NFL season just ended. They of course already have projections for next season. So I wrote I've I collected the data on all thirty two teams. Their projections for next season. Of course, I have their win totals for this season. So. I Start have with the day. Eagles. All right. So, I, uh, t- by the way, thank you, Adi. I was going to ask you to pick a team, and I'll just tell you. So, right now, we know the Eagles won the Super Bowl. Obviously, they were thirteen and three last season. Um, their projected win total is ten and a half ah, for next season. That's excellent because that's exactly what my regression forecast made that I get signed my students. And by the way, these are from e- by the way, these are from ESPN. <laughs> these yeah. are from ESPN. So the Eagles are, are regressed back towards ten and, and a half. And the Patriots, twelve five, right? In this case, it says twelve. So the Patriots are from 13 to 12. Any other favorite teams somebody wants to pick? Ravens. The Ravens. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Hold on a second. Just have to find them. Here we are. (laughs) The Ravens won nine games last year, and they're forecasted at nine games as well. No regression. No regression. For the matter of fact, it's an interesting point. That may be their their 15-year historical average, about nine so what I noticed was they that the um, if we looked at the point of mean. if mm-hmm. we looked at yeah. the point of wins, it's not exactly true. I, I could have done this where there seemed to be no regression backwards. It's obviously by definition it was yeah, somewhere eight. between eight and nine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was between eight. And so nine. the the, the uh, any the, other teams so you guys the, care here, about? Here's the analysis if you want to sort Dallas. of think about it. So Dallas, okay. I'm just looking at the. Uh, yep. So uh, let me just find the Cowboys here. Sorry, NFC East. Just, just one second here. For some reason, I can't. I assume that they would be the projected to be the main competition oh, for the Eagles the Cowboys, going into next season. The Cowboys, it's predicting nine wins for next season as well. So all right. All right so, so here's what, two pieces uh, so of information. So there'll be a race to the Let, NFC. Let's hear Audi. Yes. Let's hear Audi. So what, we did this. I did this with my students. I signed this as a problem. But here's a. So essentially, what I had them do is regress to the team's historical mean, and I defined that to be the last 15 years. Do you know what the Patriots' uh, last 15-year mean is? 
I'm going to guess 12, tw- 11, 10, 12 and a half. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that's so you, unbelievable. So you're basically regressing. <laughs> you're put it, predicting the Patriots to do worse than their last 15-year average. That's an interesting observation. The Eagles, on the other, actually not bad, nine and a half in the last, uh, in the last uh, 15 years. Well, if you go back 15 years, I mean... You know, Andy Reid wasn't They've an had awful some good, coach. Yeah. Donovan McNabb wasn't an awful quarterback. No, they, went they to, had a I mean, great they had team. A you great have to go run. back until the to further before you find and and the correlation year to year for those teams is about point six. For those teams, I didn't look yeah, at the across, entire team. I, think I would guess it would be similar. No, across. I think it's lower than that. I think okay. it's substantially lower than that. To be honest with you, I, I have it as in my head as like point three or something. Well, like, just so teams, you know, the team that had—I mean, it's just on an absolute basis—the team that had the greatest reversion, if you'd like, was the Vikings, who at least the prediction ESPN—they won thirteen. They predicted at nine and a half. So, to, a, a, a nuanced model would have. Luck in there, so so the Vikings might have had some luck that helped them get the win. Totals. Aaron Rodgers getting injured, for example. Oh yeah, right for sure. Yeah, the Packers, not surprisingly, as Shane suggested, is the biggest gainer. Yeah. if you'd like. Yeah. Hey, I, I wasn't here for the. I think for, that was probably the single biggest mid mid season event that happened last year. Right, 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 right. Well, the talking about the Packers reminds me of Doug Peterson, which reminds me of the, of the Eagles, and I missed. The post Super Bowl show last week, so I, I didn't did. get a chance to debrief with you guys about the Super Bowl. We don't the, have to talk the about parade. It <laughs> the parade. The parade. They canceled the parade. The parade was unbelievable here at the University of yeah. Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah, yeah, it happened the day after the last show, so that's news since that's the last right. show. We Jason, Jason, have the Jason Kelsey had the best uh, Super Bowl speech of all time. I don't he think you need to qualify. It was, it was one of the greatest speeches, speeches of yeah, all that's time. Right. Yeah. That was fantastic. I mean, come on, the costume alone. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. I don't don't think we can play it on the radio, but it was fantastic. If you were asked to speak without notes on any topic, could you do as well as he did for five minutes? No. No. Obviously not. I just called it one of the greatest speeches of all time. No, no, definitely not. Definitely not. Well, what was your. I couldn't even fill out that outfit. Okay, 30 seconds. Your experience of the parade of Philadelphia as they celebrated this victory. Oh, it was amazing. It was, it was amazing. It was, it was fantastic. Well, it was, it was, Let's find out. I mean, I, Did you go? Eric, it was great to see Eagles fans so happy. Yeah. It's very unusual. Um, I was out, cel- quote unquote, celebrating. <laughs> Bittersweet smell of celebrating after the Super Bowl itself on, on the night that the Eagles won. And I know everybody expected the whole city to, like, destroy itself um and every it, it didn't happen there was there was a minimal amount of negative stuff and i think it's just because everybody flipped. was incredibly happy and, and I've, see, I've really never seen eagles fans like that and then to see the city pour out the way yeah. they did i mean how it, many people came what was the the tally they were saying between a million and two but i didn't hear the, the next day tally yeah. either way it was wonderful to see all right guys that has been the first half of wharton money but we still have one half to go come back and join us after the show you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. If you're listening, 8 to 10 Eastern, you can call us, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can join the conversation. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, Shane, Eric, Adi. We have our regular boss man on the producer seat, Matty Datz. We've got Daniel Bruno, sound engineer, keeping us on the straight and narrow. Everyone's here. We've been here for four years now. We're coming up on our anniversary, guys. What are we, like two weeks away or something? We're yep. coming up on the fourth. <laughs> we need to note that. We need sounds to note like that Mar- show. March sounds right. March, it's early March. I, I think do it's remember the first discussing that World Cup. 
Yeah, it was it was Olympics, it was World Cup, it was the dawn of five thirty eight. I mean there were a lot of there were a lot of important sports things going on at that moment. Hey, speaking of important sports things, Matt tells us that USA hockey is currently up two one against Slovenia. Probably less than ten minutes to go in the third now. So U.S. Oh hockey, my goodness! This, this is uh, the kids now because we don't have the the second the second miracle on ice. That is right. Yep. <laughs> no professional players. No right. professionals. Now is that across all teams? No. That, that, that's the thing is we we should make a distinction. No NHL players. The KHL is very represented. So Russia's going to kill everybody. Oh wow. So the, it's only the NHL that uh-huh. is not sending professional hockey what about, players. What to about this. the European teams? Pavel Datsuk's playing. Like all these guys are in the KHL right now is playing. So Russia's got in, or the Olympics, the athletes that represent whatever we call them right now, they've got the best. But, the, uh, most but I was strong saying, team. if someone was a, a Russian-born person playing in the NHL, they would not be allowed to go, right? Agreed. Okay, so it'd have to be someone playing. Yeah, in a so foreign like Ovechkin and Malkin and all these oh. guys are not there. But Pavel Datsuk's been playing the KHL for a couple seasons. I see. Okay, several other guys. Yep. So the Russians are going to uh, probably dominate. Well, um, speaking of Russians or dominating, whatever, we can, whatever we're allowed to call them in this Olympics, <laughs> we're allowed to call them because apparently they are. So we're going to keep on calling yeah. them that way. But one of the big events, of course, is figure skating. We talked in the first half hour about subjectivity of judges. Mm-hmm. There are people who've looked at these things a little more closely, and in the next half hour, we have a guest to talk with us about some of those details. John Templin is joining us. John, welcome to the show. Yeah, um, great to be here, guys. John, where are you calling from this morning? Uh, New York City. You're based yeah. in New York, yes? Yes, I'm a, a reporter here for BuzzFeed News. So, John, is uh, you've done some work with our colleague and friend and co-host here, Adi Weiner. Hi, John. Adi's, Adi's bragging on you as, as good a data journalist as there is out there. So we're, <laughs> we're, we're delighted to have you on the show, and we love seeing that kind of work. But in perusing what you've done, I mean, you've got some sports work, but you've got a lot of political work up there as well. This morning, we w- were curious to hear more from you about figure skating judges in particular, but would also love to save a little time and talk about the work you've done on tennis and match fixing, concern about that. Uh, sure, yeah, I would love to talk about both. Um, and, yeah, as you probably know, uh, late last week we put out our story about my coworker, um, Rosalind Adams, and I put out a story about um, figure skating and how judges vote up their own countries and also vote down other countries. And how that permeates the sport and, and kind of influences what's happening on the ice. So, John, can you tell us first what has been known historically? Because there have been these scandals over the years that have left many people just kind of, well, you know, we, especially because we worry so much about subjective ju- judgment in other situations, we just kind of are left skeptical anyway. So what was what was known before you did your study, and then what does your study add to the conversation? Sure. Um, well, so... The everything kind of changed in the figure skating world in about 2002, where there was this pivot point um, where at the Salt Lake City Olympics, a French judge admitted and then took back that she was told to basically score the Russians higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and then figure skating moved away from that 6.0 scale that everyone remembers as a kid, uh, where you would be scored as a, on two components, the technical and the artistry. And then move to a more complicated scoring system that basically tallies up all of the individual technical elements that you completed and gives you points for each of those and then also has a artistic component. But the scores now range from, on the Olympic level, anywhere from like 40 points for a poor short program to 220 points for like 
have excellent long program or free program. Um, and as part of those changes, they also made judging anonymous. So nobody could actually know the scores that each of the judges were given. And they're, they're throwing out the high and the low score, which they claimed helped, which figure skating obviously helped, claims helps uh, reduce some of that potential bias or preference that was going on. And then, um, and then finally, two years ago, they changed that again after, um, after some complaints at the 2014 Olympics around judging and, and potential preference for judges given um, some of the things that were happening, and South Korea protested, and in 2016 they voted to actually change the rules of figure skating so that you could see what judges, how judges were scoring. Okay, so two, and, two big dynamics here. One, the anonymity. So they, they yeah. added anonymity, and, then, and they uh, you report it was genuinely well-intended. They thought that that would reduce some of the pressure that judges felt from their home federation. And so if we took that at face value, fine, fine, fine. But the consequence was the opposite, that it provided cover for probably more trouble. So they've gone back on that. And beautifully, that's allowed you to gather some data at the individual judge level and do some analysis. But let's not run too far past that first thing you said, which was that they changed the fundamental way these things are scored. And they did what we would call decomposing. So they, they went from having two scores, just technical and artistic, to every feature of the performance is evaluated independently. Yeah, let me just say, by the way, John, I was watching the skating last night, and you could actually, on the screen, see the person's score accumulating over time. Is that what um, is that what's now happening? Because that's what I saw last night for the first time. Yeah, that's basically what's happening. So every single jump or spin or, um, you know, moment on the ice has a score associated with it now, and that has some base value. And then how well you perform it um, is what you're seeing on that screen that's it's accumulating at it. You're seeing um, whether they're scoring it very high or very low, and that's what the NBC is using as those green and red boxes, basically. Well, so let's and just so say from you're seeing the technical pieces of the program be accumulated, even though you can't see the artistic components yet. So the the from a decision scientific perspective, we love that decomposition. This is like a best practice in evaluation. We would we recommend the same thing, for example, whenever you're hiring people to decompose the judgments and then to bring them back in some kind of a mechanical way that avoids many of the biases. You're not going to get rid of all the biases, but it avoids many of them. What room is left for the artistic side of things? It used to be, it sounds like it used to be 50% of the evaluation. Where does that come in? Because that feels like it's ripe. I mean, fine, there's some subjective components to it, but it feels like that would be ripe for bias um yeah so there is kind of uh there is still about 50 percent of the score that's made up of artistic scoring right Mm -hmm. Uh, so there are five artistic components they're weighted differently depending on the type of program basically so that they can weight out they can eventually when you add up all the scores they can equal or get close to equaling the technical components and and they're basically supposed to judge how you know how a skater performs on the ice, uh, their timing to the music, and and how well you know they're they're expressing themselves basically. Right. So those are much like the artistic components that were there before, but there's there's now five of them instead of one score, uh, and the judges give a score for each, and then they take the trim mean obviously, and that's the ultimate score that you get for that component, and then they add them all up. Got it. We're talking to John Templin. John is an investigative data journalist for BuzzFeed. He does work across a number of. Um, industries, but he's got a recent piece on figure skate judges that he's breaking down for us. John, the um, 
tell us a little bit about what you found, and then I think it raises some interesting questions about the structure of the industry. Yeah, sure. So um, the high level is that we found that there is a home country preference across basically all of figure skating, and it it amounts to about 3.4 points per performance. Um, Is that that big or small? um, So it's not huge, considering what I said earlier about the amount of points that can be accumulated in a performance. Um, It's somewhere, it's less than a tenth of all points for like a poor performance, and they've much smaller percentage for a very good performance, but it's enough that it can make a difference in terms of the standings, because what happens in figure skating is the, uh, the results are usually very close, are often very close. You know, a point here or there, or even a tenth of a point can make the difference between a place at a figure skating event, and so if you have a judge that is upscoring their uh, home country by that amount, it's enough maybe to tweak it so that they're person ends up on the metal stand versus somebody else. So, John, this is Eric Bradley. I want to ask you a question about the, the new scoring system and everything. Um, are the routines so fixed that let's imagine someone's performing an event, and I'm seeing it real time on screen. I don't know whether it's, I mean, I don't know, say that the skaters have an earpiece in, but imagine their coach in the stands is saying, give them the signal, go for the risky routine, because let me tell you, you're behind right now. Will that ever happen in figure skating? Like, can a routine be changed in the middle where they go for a quadruple axle versus a double axle in the middle of the routine because they know their score is not going to get them on the podium? Uh, I don't think that's happening right now, and I, and I think... Would um, it be allowed? Uh, I do think it would be allowed. I'm not quite sure. Um, I, but I think, like, if you wanted to attempt... So skaters do put in riskier or safer programs depending on how they feel about a where they are in the standings going into a certain piece of the event, right? So if you had a really great short program and you feel like you only need a certain amount of points to win in the free program, you might tone down the quads that you're going to jump. Um, so that does happen already. But I also think that uh, there's a lot of kind of calculating your scores behind the scenes. And, and this system, actually one of the things that it did is it made scoring more opaque and it made it harder for people to understand exactly how people were getting the points. And I think there's been a lot of work done in the figure skating world now to try and disambiguate those numbers and try and figure out, okay, if I do this quad, it's going to help me uh, much more than if I do this triple axle, basically. So, John, this is Adi. It was uh, nice to talk to you. But I want, one question that I have uh, listening to Cade's interview with you is you talk about upscoring, um, or questioning, I should say. The upscoring, that's, a, that's interesting, and we know that it's about 3.4 points per for the nationality matching judges. But then you mentioned the downscoring. Uh, sort of competitor, sort of a down, an anti-scoring for others. That's a much harder statistical problem because there's so many other countries that you could be attacking. How, um, how did how did that analysis come about? Yeah, so we um, we haven't looked at downscoring as effectively as we've looked at upscoring because, as you mentioned, there are a lot of other countries that it could come about in. Um, one of the things we did do when analyzing individual judges, which we actually named in the piece and. And we found that about a third of the judges that are going to be at the Olympics um, consistently show a pattern of upscoring their home country skaters. Is, is we also look at downscoring, basically. So we looked at how you score relative to the average. So there are some judges, for instance, that score other countries much lower than the, overall, than the average of the other judges. 
and score their home country only a little bit above the average. So, but when you aver- when you take that whole thing in um, in context, you see that actually they're helping their team a lot. So, so that was about the only ways they were able to poke at the downscoring thing. But it's obviously an issue too, and. Uh, there are figure skating judges that know that they're going to be competing against this team, so that's the team they have to make sure doesn't mm-hmm. get a great score. Right, so, so they identify this particular target t- uh, country or, or, or opposition that they're going to downscore. Mm-hmm. You're not just talking about general downscoring. We're gonna just, I'm going to give my – I'm going to look pretty good for my, my, my nationality so I don't stick out or look like all the others. But to make it the contrast, I'm just going to nail every other, every other oh, uh, skater. I wonder if you could do analysis where you could you – could identify in some way the skaters whose scores would most have consequence for your skater in any particular situation. It's almost right. like who's going to be close, like a nearest right. neighbor kind of thing or something as a way of operationalizing this downscoring yeah, concept. So, so, yeah, I think as a, um, as a judge or as a federation, you kind of know what the standings are going to look like going in. Mm-hmm. You, you know... Oh, the judges do. The yeah. question is whether we as the analysts can operationalize it so we can, we can identify that. Yeah, so John, let me ask you another question. Is there any, do you think there'll be a time where, like, judges get scored? Like, why can't you compete? Yeah, right. No, no. We want to judge the judges. No, well, this no, is no. a big change that happened no, in baseball when, no. they, when they introduced yeah. the scoring of umpires. That's what yeah. I'm saying. So why can't you score the judges? How consistent are they? How consistent are they with the other judges? I mean, why can't you score? Do you ever see a time where there's scoring of the judges? Just like Azadi just mentioned, it's happening in baseball. Now, matter of fact, it's in private, theory it happens in, I know, in theory it happens in the NFL. They say they put the best referees on the Super Bowl and everything. I mean, there's a, hmm. I don't know how formal the scoring is. Yeah, they system. sure do. Yeah, exactly. Those And those were catches by the Eagles, by the way. But John, <laughs> what, what do you think? Do you ever see a time where there are uh, scoring of judges? National Skating Union, which is the group that runs figure skating around the world, um, does have a system where it is uh, technically evaluating judges and the scores they give, but but it's mostly an anomaly detection system. It's looking for judges that are well outside the average um, of the the entire judging pool, including the judge themselves. So um, where it's slightly different from ours, where we did analysis versus the average of all the other remaining judges. and, and we found that that system actually flags very few total skates or elements. Um, less than 1% of the total technical elements that are skated um, are flagged by that system, and, it, and even fewer of the artistic components that a judge scores. So the ISU is doing some evaluation of the judges, but it's leaving a lot to be desired. John, can you tell us a little bit more about the system? The ISU is kind of the overarching thing, but in the article you talk about the way these judges are selected and how that might influence why they upscore or downscore their opponents. Yes, so um, one of the things about figure skating that's uh, unique to that sport is that the, uh, the country federations actually choose the judges that are going to be going to uh, the Olympics or any other large event, like major event. Um, there are a certain number of places allocated based on who is qualified, um, and then there's a draw to figure out which countries are going to have judges for certain events. And then the countries actually choose the judges that they are going to send to that event. So um, Russia picks the judge they want to judge ice dancing, or the United States picks the judge they want to judge pairs. And then um, there's actually, for the Olympics, for instance, there are, I believe, um, 
somewhere like 14 judges, and then there's a random draw from those 14 judges of the nine judges that will sit on the panel for the Olympics. But the countries obviously are incentivized to pick judges that are going to score their home their countries well. So talk about that incentive, because one could imagine countries choosing their best judges or their most experienced judges, but you're saying they choose judges that are going to promote their skaters? Well, we found that a third of the judges that are going to the Olympics, including um, most of the judges from Russia, the United States, uh, Canada, or at least half of the judges from Russia, the United States, Canada, and China, are all judges that we found favor their home country skaters um, on average and on a consistent basis that from the patterns that we were able to detect. So it does seem like countries are taking that into account when selecting judges, whether consciously or unconsciously. Well, talk, talk a little bit about the conscious versus unconscious thing. So, so there seems to be a systematic structure. There's a structure that promotes this. But it's not the case that these guys are all necessarily consciously making these changes, right? I mean, there are other reasons they might rate their own uh, skaters higher. Yeah, So, and we were really careful to talk about this in the piece and kind of explain that. Um, because it, Just because a judge is upscoring their home country doesn't necessarily mean that they're consciously saying they want their country to do the best and that's why they're scoring. It could be that they, the style of skating is something they much prefer from their home country. It could be that um, they have grown up with those skaters. They know those skaters. They know their performance. It could be that the judge themselves actually went to the rink the other day and said, it would be great if you did this as part of your performance, and then they did it. And as a judge, you think, wow, that's great. I told them to do that. That, that piece of the program looks amazing. I'm going to give them a good score. And and so there are other pieces, there are other factors that might be at play than just, oh, I'm going to give my country a good score because I want my country to do well. John, this is Eric Bradlow again. In my home field of marketing, we study these types of biases and perceptions. And one dimension people try to say, you know, try to explain that variation is, you know, kind of closeness of countries. Do we have any sense about, like, would the U.S. give less bias or maybe the equal amount of bias to Canada and maybe a negative bias to a country that's, whether it's on some ideological scale or something else? We were talking about France and Russia earlier, for example. So so do we know of any kind of patterns in the bias that can be explained by, you know, let's call them non-performance-based factors? Um. There are, if you look at the data deeply, you can find those types of patterns. Uh, We didn't talk about them in our article in particular. Um, Especially at high-level ice dancing competitions, you can see, um, which is one of the disciplines inside of figure skating, you can see countries that are scoring together, basically. And um, they're, they're, they're basically scoring together to better themselves in different events. But... We couldn't prove that. It's a smaller pattern, and so we kind of left it out of the article. We haven't written about it yet, but but it is interesting to look at, and, and I definitely encourage anyone to go look at that kind of stuff. If they, and we put all the data online, so you can get all the data that we analyzed and the code that we used to pull that data, so you can actually do your own analysis if you would like. And, John, I assume that the data availability is going to grow. You've only had one or two seasons now with anonymity removed going forward every year will be more data, yes? Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, so even the Olympics right now are providing us with more data, right? So uh, there, 
there's going to be a larger data set to work with as time goes on, yes. Terrific. We're talking to John Templin. John is an investigative data journalist for BuzzFeed News. He reported this article on figure skating, but he also does work on immigration politics and one other sports um, issue, tennis. Can we hear a little bit about the work you've done on tennis and, and match fixing? We've had every couple of years we might have someone come on and talk about that. I think most people don't know that this is a concern in the tennis world. Well, people don't know that gambling is an enormous... Gambling on tennis yeah, is what, a huge deal in Europe. Right. People wouldn't over in the States would not, would not know that. And that, of course, creates some pressures that might lead to some match fixing. What have you found in your research on that? Yeah, so um, with my colleague Heidi Blake, we actually published a story in January of 2016 now. Wow, it seems so long ago. Um, about uh, basically how tennis had found uh, match fixing and um, a match fixing problem about a decade before and had done little about it. And uh, we showed through data analysis uh, that score, that line, betting lines were still being manipulated and that, um, you know, and that it was still a problem inside the sport and that the betting houses were actually keeping lists of players that they were concerned about or didn't want, really want to take bets on. Um, and we published all this right before the Australian Open, and tennis um, actually has a team inside of tennis called the Tennis Integrity Unit that's supposed to be combating match fixing and, and working on these types of issues, and they've actually really beefed that team up. It's more than doubled in size since that investigation came out. Um, we don't and, really believe in ratios. Double could be two people instead of one. Can you <laughs> give us an absolute sense? Yeah, so um, the budget has gone, I'd actually have to look, but it's gone from something like um, like six people to 12 or even more than that now. Mm-hmm. I think there, mm-hmm. there's, there's 15 or 16 people, I think, at the, at the team now. Got it. Um, but they've really, and they've also started to be more transparent, which is something that was a big complaint beforehand, right? They would never say anything unless there was an adjudication, basically, and they had to put out something. But now they actually put out stats about the number of alerts that they've received in a quarter and from the betting houses and the uh, basically the level that that alert came at, mostly because tennis is trying to show that match fixing is contained or that match fixing alerts are at the lowest levels of the sport in general and that the futures level where there's not a lot of money, although we found that um, players that have been the top ten in the world were actually even on that list at one time or another. Wow. Well, tell us a little bit about how this happens, because it's not a matter of watching a match and saying, oh, that guy looks like he, you know, choked that point on purpose. It's it's it, actually the data that comes from the betting market. So how do, where do these alerts come from? How do they identify a, 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 a questionable pattern? Yeah, so um, there are basically... Uh, there are groups, there are consortiums of betting houses that take in data, and uh, when they see, so uh, obviously when a better is making a line, they make a line that they think is fair on a certain piece of a match or on a match, um, and when they see a lot of bets coming in on one side of that, they move that line, and if they continue to see those bets, they, um, they might get concerned, and, and they might see a pattern. And then they will go out to other betting houses and say, are you seeing the same pattern? Because if you are going to fix a match, you don't want to bet in just one place. You want to you know, spread out the uh, potential profits, obviously. So they'll ask other betting houses and say, are you seeing this pattern as well? And when they say yes, and, and they see that the bets are coming from a similar location uh, or something like that, they'll, they'll flag it to uh, the tennis integrity unit 
as an anomalous event. And, so, and that will be something that will then be looked into more deeply. But it really only matters if the, if the, the actual outcome matches what the, the betting movement suggests exactly. should be the outcome. So I'm 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 skeptical that the betting houses could stay ahead of the the fixers in this situation. And we're talking about extremely sophisticated people with all the incentive in the world to get better at this. So I mean, how anomalous do movements have to be in order to gain their attention? And wouldn't it be pretty easy to stay just under that bar if you're trying to fix a match? And and, and the, the implication, if I'm right, the implication is this stuff is probably far more pervasive than we think it is. The markets are smaller, so that that if you want to get appreciable amount of money on an a, on a single outcome, you're going to need to to really move the market. That's that could be the other side of this. Yeah, especially at the very low level matches. Where I mean, if if you're talking about like a Grand Slam match, which I don't think are fixed very often or at all, um, depending on kind of what data you believe, um, those you wouldn't have to put as much money in or you wouldn't have to move the market. But if you're going to make a significant return on a low-level tennis match, you will have to basically move the market because there's just not enough volume or liquidity in that Okay, then, then let's go to the other side. Why do these things not – I mean, why is anybody betting on a random ATP event or qualifying of something? Why Why is there any number money on that? Number 57 versus so, – against yeah, number 92. So why would there I mean, ever be normal – well, no, so, so maybe that's the answer, that there's not any money bet on these things. So when money comes in at all, they're like, hold on, this must be suspicious. So it has to be another side, otherwise you can't win. So there must be yeah, some. I mean, what is there the action? There must be some money coming in, but it is a question about why are you able to bet on a futures tournament in, you know, in Dubai or something like that. Yeah. I mean, maybe we just underestimate the markets. Maybe there are people who want to get in on these things all the time. I mean, it'd be interesting to know, like, what – how much money comes in on one of these things? Like, what what does it take to set off these alerts? Are we talking about tens of thousands? Or are we talking about hundreds of thousands? Oh no! I mean, the betting limits on on some of these matches that we're talking about are in the hundreds or thousands of dollars, right? So, um, why I mean, in the world are there people betting that on these matches? That that if, just as a routine as a routine game? Uh, that's a that's a great question. But uh, I think the you know the tennis has uh, has data providers that provide that data, um, and so those data providers then sell that data and can make money by selling that data to betting houses, and that kind of creates the cycle where you see this. Wow. It could be that much much of the action comes from the the nearby participants. I mean, it's almost like horse racing, right? You go you go to the track, enormous amount of money is bet on the outcomes. There's no particular value on any given t- Tuesday, and see, people bet huge no, amounts of money. No one's no one. The, the, we don't have people doing that. People don't. I mean, not in, in what? Not you mean in, in tennis world. or in tennis? Yeah, well, like they maybe, do at the track. maybe they, maybe there are these Dubai, stories. I mean, they don't write have... movies and books about these <laughs> old, well, worn do, out tennis well, betters. You do yeah. remember, by the way, could be about two years ago on Wharton Moneyball. We had yeah. someone who talked about tennis that's betting right. who said... Courtside. Exactly. So there's something, maybe courtside information that someone could get must that would allow them to of bet. Action. But they were trying to do that at the big tournaments where there's lots and lots of information. They yeah. wanted to get half a second advantages so they can place a bet in before the market responded to the knowledge of a point. I mean, I've never, g- I've never gone to see live tennis. Uh, is there like a giant betting room at the tennis events? <laughs> not like here, there are at horse racing? Not here, or but there might great, be you know? in, in Europe. Okay. Might, yeah, we don't know. The truth is, we don't know. We do have John who could tell us if we just shut up and listen to him. John, <laughs> we're down to just a couple of minutes. Um, 
one of the maybe when one of the big tournaments comes up, we'll have you come back and talk about tennis. But before you go, tell us what's next. You're doing this really cool data-based work that most people aren't doing. What what's on your horizon? Uh, I mean, that's a great question. When you whenever you finish a project like figure skating, um, there's really kind of a time to kind of sit sit back and kind of think about what you want to do next. And um, I'm looking for really complicated systems that haven't been explained to the world well enough, and so and that we can kind of deconstruct through data. And so that's really what I'm focused on right now and trying to figure out what the next one of those is. And so you're completely Catholic about where it could come from. I mean, that could be inside sports, outside of sports, politics, not politics. Just yeah, it could come from anywhere. As long as there's data, I'm very happy to look into it. All right. Well, keep us posted on your work. We love what you're doing. Appreciate you sharing some time with us this morning. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. So, by the way, um, um, that well, that was John Templin. John is an investigative data journalist for BuzzFeed News. They do some good work up there. You can find John. We didn't get his Twitter. Matt, can you give me? Can you chase his Twitter handle? We'll feed it back to you guys. Um, but John Templin, Adi Weiner, our very own Adi Weiner, has worked with John on some of these investigations and touts him as one of his one of his favorite journalists out there. One of his one of the most impressive data journalists out there. John's Twitter handle is J Templin. Templin is T-E-M-P-L-O-N. So he's at J Templin. Good way to follow the work that he's doing. Real quickly before we go to break, Matt tells us that since 2010, since 2010 on these tennis investigations, nine players and get this, six officials have been banned for life as a result of the investigations. So they are finding stuff, and it's not just the players. It's some of the officials as well. Interesting. It would seem like it wouldn't be that hard to find as you guys were talking about, anomalous types of other betting patterns, or it just it just seems like it wouldn't. Well, I don't, I don't know. I kind of feel the other way. If there's actually hundreds of thousands of dollars bet as a matter of routine on these matches, why is it? Well, that's the question. Yeah, it's like what is the distribution of bets? How much do lines move? Yeah. How many bets are going kind of opposite of the, let's call them the ranking system and the odds that are right. facing? We just yeah. don't know it's that. A, it's, an, it's an interesting problem, isn't it? This, this cat and mouse game between the investigators and the bettors. So basically what they did was he looked at big movements of the line. Right. Right before the, the match began, and then the outcome matching where the I money see. went. That, yeah, okay. exactly. Okay. That's, and they just did it for every match. Got it. This has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, where Danielle Bruno is bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour, rolling into the final quarter of the show. Danielle's our sound engineer. We were without her last week, I believe, and things suffered accordingly. Was Dion in here? He was. Oh, I'm sorry I missed Dion. I'm sure things didn't suffer real time. Always fun to have Dion, who helped bring this show to life four years ago. This is Cade hosting this morning with my colleagues and co-creators of Wharton Moneyball. Everyone's here. Shane, Adi, Eric. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, especially if you're listening one of the times we're replayed over the course of the next week. We're replayed four or five times. You can drop us a note on a midnight Thursday, and we'll respond next time we come on here. You can follow us on Twitter, our handle, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We just shot a real-time photo of Shane Jensen protesting, silently protesting the conversations about figure skating. Not so silent in the first half hour of the show. Does not like... <laughs> Does not like. I'm the not sub- really the strong. He does not like type. subjective I'm not, I'm, 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 sports. I'm, I'm, I'm subjective just, sports. I am strong, but not silent. <laughs> they do have. Com- they're not a subjective sports. They just have a component of sh- subjective. They're pageantry that we call sport. <laughs> Diving also does that also count? 
Um, I we're just yeah. make sure yeah, he make no, sure. No, no. I, I have a hard. We, uh, we, we, so I have my my statement is, is I have a very hard to take serious. I, I cannot take seriously any sport where the outcome is entirely driven by judging. It's not entirely driven. I mean, no, I mean, the judges produce the entirety of the score. As uh, I mean, I'm making a distinction between that and say like football or baseball, where. Unfortunately, the referees slash umpires have a role in the outcome, but they do not drive. But they're not measuring something that doesn't I mean, exist. It's not. I mean, they are, there's their interrater correlation is high. There's there's something to measure, and they're measuring it. Well, I mean, you know, and I, I guess that's right. Though we just had a half hour hearing about you know how they tweak the number. I mean, is is you know would the same judges rate like you know if you if you blinded them to country for example would we have the same top three at the end of the figure skating competition uh, i think we would i mean i mean the, the point is is that there is a bias it's not subst- it can throw can a match be. Can it be. can be can and it's some, not something to ignore but you're actually measuring something if you looked at the uh i mean if you if you if you were to i mean it's, listen we, we really can't beat this dead horse well, but we, it's dead it's dead i'll give you something subjective i'll give you something subjective the value of an nfl quarterback who started five games that's a subjective 137 he started eight games and okay. he's eight no he's, he's undefeated <laughs> he's undefeated over a half season of football all right, we got so we only about, we half get, season of football. Yeah, okay. We're talking about the the starting quarterback for the San Francisco yeah. 49ers, who was grown and sold was supposed to be Brady's by replacement. Belichick at in New England. Yeah, and after starting about half the season this year and playing well, he was signed to what is it again? A hundred. It was I think five years, hundred and thirty-seven million dollars. Yeah, so it's getting up there. I mean, for a long time we've thought about. The, the benchmark for quarterbacks being in the low $20 million yeah, a year range. This is in the mid to high 20s. Is, this yeah. is pushing 30. And it's not all guaranteed, as Eric points out, but it's a new high. It's a well, new high for a guy is there, who hasn't is there any other so, free agent quarterback you'd rather have than him right now? This is the whole thing. It's where else I you don't get th- I mean, maybe Kurt Cousins. That would be the uh, that would be the obvious person that people yeah. are thinking of. Um, I don't know. Is Blake Bortles a free agent, or is he? I'm not saying you'd want him. I'm just no, asking. No, it, it, it's you know people think that they probably aren't going to roll into the next season with Blake Bortles, the quarterback in Jacksonville. But I don't. I believe he's signed for them. He's signed. What's interesting, by the way, back to our prediction. So the 49ers won six games last year, including the last five. Anybody want to guess what the Forecasters, yeah, what for the them? Oh, interesting. Is. I would guess uh, eight, seven. All right, you guys are right there. Seven and a half, mm-hmm. seven and a half. So even, I mean, they're not predicting the magic of Garoppolo to go through the whole season, but seven and a half from yeah. six to seven and a half sounds about right. Let me give you a list of quarterbacks. This is from, of course, Matt because he works, and the rest of us don't on this show. He gives us a list of quarterbacks who've been signed without a lot of experience. Here's the list: Brock Osweiler, Ooh. Matt Flynn, Matt Schaub, Matt Cassell. Matt Castle. Castle, Matt Castle, yep. What do you think about that list? That's not so impressive, to not be honest. honest. Not good. <laughs> That's not good. I mean, I, I mean, you kind of... I mean, San Francisco's well, definitely hoping Garoppolo's the best of those. That, that list of suspects. What's the typical number of years years of experience? I mean, Garoppolo didn't play m- much, but he was... When did he graduate college? That's right. He's, he's been, been he's out in the league. four years, maybe. Mm-hmm. So that sound not, right? He's no rookie. That's right. right. That's right. That's right. Well, the same was true for Osweiler. Yeah. Osweiler had sat behind Manning for a while. Well, he was good, but he was not good post-signing. Right, right. He's been terrible. 
since then. Did, did Actually, I think Matt Flynn had been on Green Bay, if yeah, I got it right. That's he right. Been, it's not like he just got... The, as a matter of fact, interesting, these are all examples of Matt backups. Cassell played, uh, Matt, Matt Castle. Cassell was a backup. Matt Castle had, was a backup and played a full season. and went only, or Yeah, essentially went, played a full season. Was he went the quarterback like and when five. Brady got injured yep. that year? Okay, so he was the Brady injury quarterback year. Right, they went 11-5 and five that season, didn't make the playoffs. So most I mean, of, it was a down most year for of the, the Patriots. You think that, the, that uh, Garoppolo's value is because he won five games with a team that had won nothing up until then. Well, he also won three games with the Patriots. No, no, but I, I, the real value. The point I'm making is that winning with the Patriots doesn't seem to be that difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, I don't think I could do it, this, but they do have a good this system up there. This is a fundamental challenge yeah. In, yeah. In, in evaluating quarterbacks because they're so dependent on the system yeah, and, the, right. and the teammates they're surrounded by. But it, despite knowing this, we forever don't discount it enough. We don't. But I, I think that Garoppolo, I mean, the, the 49ers were horrible. In the first until Garoppolo came, horrible. They, I think, they had won nothing, maybe one game. One game, and then, and then they won their last five. Yeah. I mean, it was just a one of the most startling uh, turnarounds. And, yeah, and you have and, to attribute it to the to the quarterback. And I mean, if you can kind of get a, def- I mean, obviously having a depend. I mean, I think we've got enough uh, data to sort of potentially to forecast at least that he is at least an average quarterback. That's correct. Right, and an average quarterback, average is starting inc- quarterback, in an the average NFL. starting quarterback is incredibly valuable. I mean, yes, they gave him yeah, the way sixth- beyond average value, but I mean, they have a look, ton of cap look, space. If you look at the other quarterbacks supposedly yep. listed as average, you know, Jameis Winston's in that. Se- I mean, there's yeah. quarterbacks that a lot of teams would love to have yep. that would be in that middle set. And let me just say, the other advantage, of course, having it at the end already locked up is. Well, there's this thing called the draft coming up. My guess is the 49ers who are picking 8th, ninth, 10th, wherever they're picking, they're not going to be drafting a quarterback now. That's right. So now they've got, in some sense, the most important position on the team locked up. They can now focus their draft on other positions. I'm agreeing with you. If you told me he was an, ends up being a 10-15 to 15 quarterback in the NFL, they would say, it's not we traded a, a second, they traded a second yep. round pick to get him. I mean, yep. they would take that in a second. Yep. One, one wrinkle I would add is that he has been playing for them. And so he's been in their building. Right. And they know a lot more about a guy that's been in their building than somebody who's been playing for somebody else. So Osweiler bounced around, and people kept on citing him who hadn't worked with him. These guys learn about players in ways that we don't when we only watch them on Sundays. So that's one check mark in the positive column for for this signing. Speaking of drafted, are y'all interested at all in this uh, NBA All-Star game? The first time that the teams have been drafted essentially by the two captains? Is that something Well, I mean, there's a couple things that interest me, like how are they going to play the game? I mean, the outcome, what, of course. Whether they're going to play? You know, are they going to play? Are the starters going to play a little bit? Are they going to play hard? Is, no. Does there any They're going to play as hard as they play during the regular season, which is not hard <laughs> at all. not so much. Well, yeah. I mean, they, 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 yeah, that's right. Oh, it'll Will be, this be any different? Let me rephrase it. Will this year no. be different no, than previous there's no years? defense. It's a highlight reel, right? Guys are going to go for big dunks. They're going to go for things off the backboard. So the, the drafting thing's not going to change the incentives? No. 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 You're right. predicting now. All right. So no. what, what about... No, what about the actual regular season that's going on right now? Are you, do you believe that the Cavs are turned around now? They've been reconstituted. They won two impressive games against two of the best teams in the league, the Celtics and the Thunder, last night. What can we learn from two games? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's reassuring because I was, I, was, I was kind of disconcerted that we might actually get a different finals matchup for the first <laughs> time in like four years or whatever. Well, but you is, know. Do you think Toronto is better than the Cavaliers? Well, let me just say, 
Toronto's now number one in the East, not Cleveland. Let's yep. start with that. It's not Celtics, sorry. Start with it's that. It's not Celtics. It's not Celtics. By the way, uh, Toronto, it's just one metric. If you look at you know the plus minus, you know, average. You eight know, and a half or so. Yeah. They're at eight and a half, which is third best in the NBA after Golden State and Houston. And by the way, they're within like within point two of, of them. They're yeah. all right up yep. there, right up top. So Toronto is putting together an extraordinarily impressive season. Extraordinarily impressive. I would think that Still, again, you know what they say, you still have to beat LeBron James in a seven-game series, which I see. I still see Cleveland as the favorite coming out of the East. Um, one of the things I was thinking of more from a statistical perspective, because it was the 538 article that came out and said, you know, after the changes, the projected number of wins for the uh, Cleveland only goes up by three. So then I was starting to think over about... A, over a season, so over half a season. One or two, one, one and a half. So then I started to think about, you know, there's all this, this is all the lore. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Okay, maybe. Let's assume for a second that's true. How can you measure interaction effects among players when those players haven't played together? So I started to think about this. So let me just tell you what we do in marketing. I've got products. I want to know if they're complementary. Let's say people haven't used those products in a complementary fashion, but we want to measure how they do What's it. What's an example? Well, so for an example would be, you know, let's Beer and pretzels. <laughs> yeah, not really beer and pretzels, but it is a lot of times in the consumer packaged goods area. It might be something like one food group and another that you wouldn't necessarily put together. Okay. So what people then rely on, and I was just going to ask you guys if you can do it in sports, is you rely on an attribute-based model. Products aren't products. Players aren't players. It's not Rodney Hood. It's not uh, Jordan Clarkson. It's a player with this characteristics playing with a player of this characteristics. That we have lots of experience on players with those characteristics together. So we build an attribute-based model. And now we say, is the whole greater than the sum of its parts? So, 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 so two things there. One... Uh, that's the most boring version of whole greater than some of the parts that can be told. I'm that's doing a, my best. That's the statistician's version because many people, the story on the Cavs isn't that. The story on the Cavs, the story, I'm saying story. It's yeah. its effort. Yeah. It's no, it's just, it's locker room. Do so yeah. so, so, so to do kind of, this but, analysis, oh, go ahead. But so let me just point that out because I love the question and the analysis, but it's just, it's the technical version that's very different from the narrative that's being sold out there. But let me say that that study's been done there was a paper at MIT at the MIT Sports Analytics Conference, which is coming up at the, For end, of, basketball. At the end of next week. On basketball. Great. On exactly that. It's a terrific way to operationalize the problem, Eric. And th- there's been some work done on exactly what attributes actually create those synergies. Oh, great. Regardless of the outcome, I'm glad to hear that at least the way I was thinking about the problem is consistent with thought leaders. That, that analysis about sounds it. very difficult. What, what, what players, because uh, historically, what players have the characteristics of LeBron James? <laughs> You're so snarky today. No, no, no. I mean, a little. Yeah, like, you are like, snarky. Like, well, I'm always snarky, guys. But, uh, but I mean that that it sound. I just I feel like you right. you, you you want to borrow the right. whole point of this is that you don't have an interaction directly with LeBron James and player X. Correct. So you want to it's borrow good. strength. It's a, it's a very fair point. It's a very across fair point. you know historically players like LeBron so James. I, I just it's it's. I, so, I feel like it's so going to be me, tough to so get what, that. So what I would have to do is what we do in marketing as well, which is let's imagine I've never observed a product with this price, with that. So what we do is you're going to make – I would do. I'm a parametric Bayesian guy, so I'm going to make some linear assumption. Yeah. I'm going to have to make some assumption about as you move away from the observables, what do you think it goes up like a, like a U-shaped? Is it right. linear? You're going to have to make some assumption about these interaction effects. And I'm not saying it's right, but you're going to make some assumption because it's, it's outside the range 
range of data that it's we beyond, have. Yeah. Beyond the support. Is the, yeah, it's yeah, beyond the, the support yeah, of the data support. we have. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I was just thinking, this, to me, I'm glad to hear, I'm going to look up this MIT article, because I was thinking, that's how I would try to say, if you know, because if you told Cleveland fans that all of this is for one and a half extra wins in the regular season, that you might also imply it's not a huge change in the playoffs, most people would say... That's not great. That's not the narrative, at least, being told right now. Do you believe in the reconstituted Tiger Woods? He's also somebody we're seeing play out there. We're making bets on what's going to happen. I, so my, my model about most things, my, I, in fact, I have a question for our, our co-director, or if you're the director of people analytics. I always say when I evaluate talent now, I'm going to say this in a boring statistician way again. It's not about the intercept, where you are now. It's about the slope. It's how can the person improve over time. That's my motto in hiring now. It's not about the intercept. It's about the slope. So with Tiger Woods, do we believe that Tiger Woods is what I would call a self-aware, smart golfer who will learn the limitations and strengths of the new Tiger Woods? And I think the answer is yes. Everything in his career suggests he's one of the most intelligent golfers to ever play. And he knows himself. So if you listen to his narrative now, he knows his attributes are not the same as they were when he was 25 or even 35. But he's learning what the new Tiger Woods can do well. He's, what, 42? He's 42. Which is not so past a it typical used, it golf. Used it used to be, it's and not it's not anymore. No. No. It's not anymore. So I think the answer is I'm expecting we're seeing the – assuming he stays healthy. We're seeing the 23rd place tie in his second tournament back – the worst Tiger Woods we're going to see over the next three to five years. I think we're going to see an improving Tiger Woods, which we'll see at the Genesis Open this weekend, and then we'll see it you know, in a couple months, in a month and a half at the Masters. I think we're going to see a heavy, steep slope increase for Tiger Woods as he learns what his, you know, how to calibrate his own shots. Is this how Eric sells candidates to, the, to marketing now? I do. It's not about the <laughs> intercept. It's about the slope. It's, it's, it's obviously a harder thing to project. I mean, the intercept, the intercept we're observing right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. Do you think he'll get good enough? that he'll get a couple majors in that couple, time span? One. He would settle for one. Yeah, I, of course. I, I think the answer is no. Um, not because I don't think he's going to improve. I just think the competition's, the, too, the stiff. competition's yeah. too stiff. Well, let me give you an observation. And he won't play. Let me just go back. By the way, I want to go back to Adi's from when we were talking about Giancarlo Stanton. It's an, And this we talked about this a little bit on Moneyball. Rate. It's rate and N. How many shots? shots how many apple. shots will he get? Where he's the not the way over the hill Tiger Woods. Let's say he's got five to seven healthy years. That's twenty majors. Okay, that's not many. That's and, not many. He probably won't get. And that he can't many be one in twenty. Let's imagine, at any one of them. let's imagine it's twenty this, majors right now. It's the, N and rate right yeah. now for the Masters. He's twenty-five to one, and and we know that's going to be inflated. But that's what the market says. But let's even take that number. So let's imagine he's twenty-five yeah. to one for the next twenty-five that's majors. The, the actual he's, value his expected yeah. value is one. Yeah. I think the actual value is lower, but its expected value is one. So. I, yeah. not, I'd have to go on the yeah, under. The, the, I'm, under. I'm going under a half. The trait that I, that this is psychological, but the trait that I feel is gone that was a huge advantage to him back in the day was his competitiveness and his utter belief that he was going to beat the guy that he was playing against. Right. And, you know, I, he obviously had an extraordinary game and extraordinary physical skills, but that mental game, it was, it was Jordan-esque. And I do believe, even though we can't quantify it, I do believe that is something that separates the very, very best in many situations. And it separated Mike. It was one of the reasons Michael Jordan was so good. And it's one of the reasons Tiger Woods was so good. And that's gone. That thing has been beat down. I, I agree that, but mm -hmm. I'll, I'll stay with my comment. I think we're going to see a better version of Tiger Woods than we're seeing right now going forward because he'll learn how to adapt his game to what he's physically able to do. But no, is he going to win a major? I don't think so. I hope so. I'm rooting for him. I'm really hoping he Will does. Will you be surprised? Yeah. 
I would You'd be, be surprised. surprised. That's right. Okay. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna go into the final segment, and we're playing with making this a more regular segment. We'll see how it goes. If anybody out there wants to give us any feedback, that'd be great as well. But it, outside of football season, we don't have the money ball matchups, and so how do we wrap up the show? Well, we've been playing with something that Eric's cobbled together on over and over under. Is over that, under. All right, let's do some over under. So I've got this, by the way, I've got this for next season. So I'm doing it for the 2018 season. I've got... Which sport? Well, I've got a, a couple you sports here. Okay. I've got football, basketball, uh, baseball here. But we could do lots of sports. So let's start with the Eagles. So over, under, 10.5 wins. For next season, obviously. Next season. 10.5 wins, over, under. Under. I, I would... Wow. You said under? Under. Yeah. I'm going to go over because I don't believe in the NFC East. And they've got two quarterbacks they can win with. They've learned how to win with both of them. Well, I think every single other team in the NFC East will be improved last next year compared to what they were this year. But, okay, but and that's from, yeah. but that's Well, I mean, base. I'm going to go with mm-hmm. overall. So 10.5 is my target. So you're asking me. I'm, t- I'm, coin, way, I'm coin tossing on just that. Just so people know, I didn't randomly select these over-under right, right. numbers. It's not like I said, six, let's just pick a number. <laughs> I tried to pick ones we're that okay were right that at the difficult point. Yeah. So I'm, I would go over Don't, only because... It's just so nice when the Philadelphia yeah, Eagles Yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> By the way, I it's a tough one. I might as well give my prediction. I'm going over, but I think the number is 11. Yeah, that's, that's I, what I, we that, call, if, yeah. It's not much over. Because I, I agree with Shane. I think the NFC East will be better. Um, Sixers now. So I've chosen an interesting number. One, probably you'll all go lower, but who knows. 49 and a half wins. Good now, Lord. Well, they're on pace right now this season to win 45. And remember, by the way, just so you know, they have the best... about this season or no, next no, no, season? No, 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 next season. Next, next season. season. They also, just so you know, they have the best record in the East since, like, over the last like, 30 games. The, the Sixers have the best record in the Eastern Conference over the last 30 games. They've won 10 straight at home. Next season, do the Sixers win 50 games? You are all about the slope. You're Mr. Slope now. That's what I am. Oh, I, would saying, say, I would say Sixers... absolutely win 50 games next year. Okay, so you're over oh, yeah. 49 absolutely. and a half. I will say not so absolutely over. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take uh, the I, over, but what, I'm not very You're going to go over that. 50? You know, 50 you, or over you, next year? You've, you've convinced me, Eric. I'll go over. Um, you know, also because, I mean, I, I think this is a better bet than the previous one. I went over on the Eagles, but I wouldn't wage much money on that one. Oh, I think the Eagles going uh, over ten and a half is more likely. All right, now let's go baseball we'll quickly. So last year the Phillies won sixty six games. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the over. <laughs> Not sixty six though. That wasn't my number. Seventy five. By the way, ten I'll game improvement in baseball yeah, yeah. This, this coming season. Yeah, yeah. seventy five. Well, actually, no, no. I mean, no, I don't what, see what, that. Who who they even who, who's playing for that? Eighty one is mean. So you're no. I that, I I chose a number I that was basically halfway between what they that. did I and eighty one. You weren't choosing the numbers. I thought you were taking. No, I them said I did. Oh. You chose them carefully. No, I chose them. All right, two In last two ones. years for sure. Two ones this year. Yankees no. and the Red Sox. I have them each at ninety wins. So over under, Yankees and Red Sox. I think over for both of them. Uh, one over and one under. Yeah. God, there we go. <laughs> okay. See how much well, that's well what done. Yeah, well, well done. Well done. <laughs> well done. But I'm going to take Yankees on the over and Sox on the other. Yeah. Sorry, Shane. No, it's all right. Sorry, world. Sorry, Cade. We can all agree nobody's happy about it, but, you know, that's still production. Uh, and I think Eric and I are delighted by that. When I, Yankees going I've, over and the I've Red never Sox been more excited for a Yankee season. Obviously, they're an extraordinary clean team. They do everything by the book. I'm so yeah. excited by the <laughs> and uh, scrappy underdogs. Too. Yeah, yeah, historically too. Yeah, well, know. Know. We know they're Shane so has, easy to cheer for. Sh- Shane has great comfort with cheating. The, well, wait, wait. <laughs> but be honest. Just one last thing. Obviously, we're running out of time. Just one last thing. Before they signed Stanton, you had said here on the air 
that you actually started to semi, not root for the Yankees, but you weren't as disgusted by them because they were building the, the, things no, the right, right way. Right. No, you were set on the air. Those feelings were starting, but thank goodness they got rid of those like positive feelings. Exactly. By doing that. From the NL. Doing that. So the last over-under we could do is, let's just say, tennis majors. That's something that's salient to lots of people here. Roger. So let's even say for the rest, let's say Roger Federer the rest of his career, 1.5. Under. Oh, wow. Um, that's a toughie. I, I don't, I don't have, my instinctive reaction is, is, under. is over. I would but, say under. But I don't have a good basis for it. Well, let's go back to N in base rate. He's not going to, let's assume he's not going to win the French, although if Nadal's hurt, Freder could win the French. Why not? Let's say he's not going to win the French. Does he have five more majors in him to play? Does he play, let's say, this year and next? So can he win two of five? I don't think so. All right. Well, I then, don't either. Then you got to go under. Yeah. I think go one under. is a strong possibility, but two, whoa. All right. Good fun, guys. And that was a fun two hours. Appreciate you being here. For Cade Massey, for Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. For our team in the booth, Matty Dots, Daniel Bruno. For our team outside the booth. Patty Hall, Deion Simpkins. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.